December 7th, 2023, regular meeting of the Government Audit and uh, Oversight Committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. I'm Supervisor Dean Preston, Chair of the Committee. I'm here with Vice Chair Catherine Stephanie and Supervisor Connie Chan. Our Committee Clerk today is Victor Young. Uh, and our thanks to SFGovTV for staffing this meeting. Mr. Clerk, do we have any announcements? Yes, public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, please line up to speak on your right. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to uh, Elisa Samira, uh, the Government Audit and Oversight Committee Clerk at alisa.somera at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be included as part of the file. You may also send written comment via U.S. mail to our office at City Hall, 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlit Place, Room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. Please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices. Documents to be included as part of the file should be submitted to the clerk. Items acted upon today will be are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda on January 9th, 2024, unless otherwise stated. That completes my initial announcements. Thank you, Mr. Clerk, and please call item one. Item number one is a hearing on the 2022-2023 Civil Grand Jury Report entitled Time to Get to Work, San Francisco's Hiring Crisis. Thank you, Mr. Clerk, and today we will be uh, hearing our last two uh, civil grand jury reports for the year. I want to welcome uh, all of uh, today's uh, jurors, uh, some of whom I know are here, uh, and, uh, and the departments, and thank them all for being here. Um, for those who uh, did not tune in to our discussion of the other uh, civil grand jury reports um, last month, um, they, everyone should know that each year civil grand jury investigates and uh, scrutinizes our city's conduct of public business and makes findings and recommendations to city entities um, which in turn have the opportunity to engage with those findings um, and respond to those recommendations. Um, the two civil grand jury reports um, concern that we'll be talking about today um, concern issues that we uh, often have uh, here at the Board of Supervisors, and spe specifically that's uh, city hiring and vacancies, which we'll be hearing about first as this first item. Uh, then we will be calling the second item, which deals uh, with homelessness services in our city. Uh, there's no question that both of these issues are extremely important topics uh, for our city's functioning um, and quality of life for residents here. Um, and it is uh, completely understandable why members of the public want to learn more about what the city's doing and how we can improve. And I think these grand jury reports are extremely helpful as we work toward uh, those shared objectives. So I'm looking forward to the discussion on both these reports today um, re regarding the report that has been called agenda item one, time to get to work. Um, I will just note that the uh, civil grand jury correctly, in my opinion, underscored the reality that vacant positions can have a significant impact on our city's ability to deliver crucial services to our residents. I know that will be part of the presentation and is outlined in detail on the reports, and I encourage anyone who has not yet seen the report uh, to access it uh, on the city's uh, website. Um, we need to make sure we're able to hire good candidates for these positions and not to lose them 
before they ever make it in the door as a result of extensive hiring delays, uh, which are outlined in a key part of the report. So I will let the civil grand jury speak uh, for themselves. Uh, and with that, want to welcome uh, the four-person uh, pro tem, Stan Feinsod, to say a few words uh, about the civil grand jury and introduce uh, their presenter for this report. Thank you very much, Supervisor Preston. Good morning. It is an honor to come before the Government Audit and Oversight Committee of the Board of Supervisors, representing the 2022-2023 San Francisco Civil Grand Jury. I'm going to introduce Civil Grand Jury Report's Time to Get to Work and Hitting the Performance Bullseye. Your committee reviewed our other two reports on November 2nd, on that day, you heard about our teachers and small business reports not making the grade and taking care of business. My name is Stan Feinsod. I served as the four-person pro tem during the term of this civil grand jury, which ended on June 30th, 2023. I was the backup, the assistant to Karen Kennard, the four-person, and assisted her as she performed her duties. She was an outstanding foreperson. To remind you, our civil grand jury began its work on July 1st, 2022. It consisted of 19 voluntary members serving a one-year term with a mission to choose and investigate elements of the city and county of San Francisco government operations and make recommendations for improvement. We completed our term on June 30th, 2023. The jury adopted rules, selected officers, and created and implemented a process of choosing specific agencies and processes to investigate. We started with over 50 ideas and finally decided on five specific areas, which ended up with four published reports. We met together each week for a year our committees met frequently. They undertook research, developed draft reports, and finally completed the reports which included findings and recommendations. You should understand that the jury operated on a supermajority basis and needed 12 votes to proceed on each and every step of the process. So these reports are products of the entire jury. We are very grateful to the many employees and managers of the city agencies, the public, and others who assisted us in our research. The two reports you will review today are about the city's hiring crisis and the contracting methods the city uses to provide homelessness services. For the first report, Time to Get to Work, I would like to introduce our first presenter, Marvin Norman. Our second presenter who will follow for hitting the performance bullseye, contracting for better outcomes in homeless services is Rick Ulrich. He will come after Marvin. Thank you very much. Thank you for your comments. And just to clarify for a process, um, we have them agendized as two separate items, which allows public comment on each in of those between. items. So if we could hear the presentation just on the first report, uh, then we'll have members, uh, then we'll hear from the department. Uh, on that report, the public on that report, then we'll call the next agenda. Understood, thank you very much. Welcome.
technology. I'm ready. Good morning. My name is Marvin Norman, here to provide you a very brief presentation regarding the jury's report titled Time, Time, um, <laughs> Time to get to work, Tim social hiring crisis. In the next 10 minutes, I'm gonna to try to distill down to the essence a year's work of effort, but I really wanna focus on how I believe this body can best engage with this very important issue. Our investigation concluded with a report containing eight findings and 17 recommendations, responses required by law from the mayor and responses were invited from the Department of Human Resources, the Civil Service Commission, the Office of the City Administrator, and the Controller's Office. Timely responses to the jury's report and the findings and recommendations were submitted to court by all respondents. There was general agreement with the jury's first two findings that the city's vacancy rates negatively impact critical service outcomes in the city's hiring process takes too long. No surprise there. Responses otherwise reflected partial disagreement with the jury's other six findings. However, in several instances, despite the expression of partial disagreement with the jury's findings, city department responses to the jury's recommendations related to those findings stated that the recommendations which had either had been implemented or would be implemented in the future in one instance required further analysis. The entire report and all, re all responses are available on the Civil Grand Jury's website. Although no findings and recommendations were specifically directed to this body or to the Board of Supervisors, three specific findings, findings two, five, and six, and certain recommendations for improvements in governmental operations related to those findings are potentially of interest to this body because city departments inform the court that these recommendations require further analysis or will be implemented in the future. A mayoral or city department response to a grand jury recommendation stating that a recommendation will be implemented in the future or requires further analysis could be a basis for the Board of Supervisors to direct a variety of follow-up actions to the jury's report. Four recommendations relating to finding two require follow-up activity or monitoring. The 60-day hiring timeline goal was one recommendation, recommendation 2.1. Implementing a framework to better anticipate employee separations, recommendation 2.4. Completing the post-referral process more quickly, recommendation 2.5. And reducing the number of job classifications. Now let's drill down just a bit into a few relevant details regarding implementation of each of these recommendations. Recommendation 2.1 regarding establishing a 60-day hiring timeline goal, we understand that the Department of Human Resources is collaborating with the Civil Service Commission and uh, public sector unions to revise the civil service rules. And this may include the authority to shorten various time periods based on the specifics of the recruitment rather than the previous one-size-fits-all approach. The jury believes the 60-day hiring timeline is an aspirational goal worth pursuing. However, we understand there are several factors that could pose a challenge to meeting a 60-day hiring timeline, such as the need to review large applicant pools, conduct exams and interviews, and a lengthy required background investigation which are required for certain roles. 
We understand that the Civil Service Commission plans to continue to collaborate with the Department of Human Resources to work towards reducing hiring timelines to an ideal and realistic goal. We would respectfully request the Board of Supervisors to track the progress and obtain updates regarding the DHR collaboration with the Civil Service Commission and the further analysis of a 60-day hiring timeline goal. With respect to anticipating employee separations, recommendation 2.4, we are informed that the Department of Human Resources is already working or planning to work on this item and that the Department of Human Resources has already begun researching likely retirement patterns. According to city respondents, the anticipated timeline for completing this research is July 1, 2024. Once this research is complete, the Department of Human Resources can then begin process redesign work to ensure that voluntary separations are noted earlier so that recruitment actions can start earlier. Again, the Board of Supervisors should issue a resolution in support of a specific follow-up action and report regarding future implementation of this recommendation. As to developing incentives for the timely completion of the post-referral process, recommendation 2.5, it's not clear to us, not clear to the jury that Department of Human Resources response is actually a statement of commitment to implement what the jury recommended as one measure to speed up the hiring process. We were informed that DHR is currently in the process of developing training for hiring managers on the hiring process. In addition, DHR is finalizing a list of recommendations to streamline interviewing, which is a key component of the post-referral selection process. We would urge the Board of Supervisors to require specific follow-up actions and reporting regarding this recommendation and DHR's response. As to recommendation uh, 2.6, which was the recommendation to reduce the number of job classifications, we know the Department of Human Resource has been looking at reducing the number of job classifications with several job classifications already having been abolished. We were informed that DHR is committed to continue this work in collaboration with the Civil Service Commission. An excessive number of job classifications is counterproductive to an efficient hiring process. Reducing job classifications by eliminating or merging job classifications from several related classifications will result in economies of scale all along the hiring sequence. And the jury respectfully requests the Board of Supervisors to monitor activity on this front. As to finding five, there are two jury recommendations relating to this. There are two jury, two jury recommendations relating to finding five that require follow-up activity and monitoring. One is DHR collaboration with unions on recruiting and apprenticeship plans for critical service departments. And the other is DHR collaboration with unions on plans for retention and succession, both of these supposedly to be implemented in the future. Drilling down a bit further here, um, I will say that the response to the jury's recommendation 5.2 uh, was a bit vague and incomplete without specifically expressing any commitment to collaborate with unions on recruitment and apprenticeship plans. However, it's possible that the efforts to transition many exempt employees to permanent positions, which was referred to in the response to the court, does in some way relate to a commitment to future implementation of the jury's recommendation regarding development of plans for recruiting and retention. It's not clear. We would urge the Board of Supervisors to seek clarification 
from the respondents on this item and require specific follow-up actions and reporting. Moving on to the plans for retention and succession, which was recommendation 5.3. We understand that Department of Human Resources has been meeting with unions starting in July of this year to identify where there are issues of retention and succession and how these issues can be addressed in the bargaining process. We were informed that additional negotiations are to occur in the spring of next year in anticipation of changes that would go into effect in July, uh, July of 2024. We need all stakeholders to keep their eyes on the ball here. And uh, we are confident that you will endeavor to be kept apprised of developments on this front. And we respectfully request you to require specific follow-up actions and reporting as within your powers. Finding six, um, there are three recommendations here relating to finding six that should be subject to follow-up activity or monitoring. One is the recommendation for a public dashboard to be implemented in the future. Uh, one is, two is explanatory materials and training resources. And the third item is training hiring managers. All three of these supposedly to be implemented in the future. As to recommendation 6.1, which is a recommendation for developing a public dashboard, the court was informed that Department of Human Resources will work with departments to capture the best options, to explore, I'm sorry, to explore the best options available to share a dashboard with the public. The controller's office stated that they were available to support Department of Human Resources and others to develop public dashboards and other regular public reporting. We would respectfully request that the supervisors track and monitor activity relating to future implementation of this recommendation. As to recommendation 6.2, which was a recommendation to develop explanatory materials and training, the Department of Human Resources has developed online content on careers.sf.gov, detailing how the hiring process works for job applicants. And DHR also plans to expand on this work in collaboration with the Civil Service Commission, while also building out improved explanatory materials and training resources for hiring managers by July 1 of next year. We would respectfully request, I know this is becoming repetitive, but we would request that the supervisors track and monitor activity relating to this recommendation as well. Finally, uh, with respect to the recommendation 6.3, which is a recommendation to develop training for hiring managers and feedback on process changes, we were informed that Department of Human Resources is currently working on the development of hiring manager training materials, as well as the means to gather stakeholder input and evaluations of process changes. But old habits die hard. And we would urge, we would urge the Board of Supervisors to require specific follow-up actions and reporting because all of the very good effort on hiring process changes merits that kind of attention and follow-through. In conclusion, I think I have about another minute, the city is at a crossroads. Delivering critical city services requires a robust city workforce and an efficient but equitable and transparent hiring process that can operate at a modern speed. The jury believes that by following the jury recommendations, 
the city will be able to improve critical service delivery, shorten the hiring process, and bring city recruiting and retention efforts into the 21st century. Ensuring that these changes are effective will require coordination, creativity, and dedication, but we believe that city leadership is up to the challenge. The city must address the hiring crisis if we are to weather the next few years of looming budget cuts. It's time for the city to get to work. Please require specific follow-up actions and reporting as within your powers to assure that the city's hiring crisis is resolved. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Norman, for your presentation and for all your work on this report. Um, next, uh, we will hear from uh, Department of Human Services, um, and I know we'll also be hearing uh, from some representatives from, uh, from labor uh, during our public comment, and I just want to recognize uh, the work of both of DHR and uh, labor partners in uh, their commitment to staffing up here in the city and we're looking forward to learning some of the uh, progress uh, that we've been making and some of the responses uh, to the civil grand jury report. Welcome, Director Carol Eisen. Um, thank you, Chair President, members of the committee. Uh, it's our pleasure to be presenting to you uh, this morning. We wanna thank Mr. Norman and all of the members of the civil grand jury. Um, we think the work is really important. We appreciate uh, their research and investigation and um, the recommendations that they've provided to us. We feel confident, and I hope you will after you hear our presentation, that we're moving in the right direction. And uh, so I'm going to just launch in as soon as our... All set, Mawili? Okay. Thank you. And, and Director Eisen, I... I've failed to mention, I believe we also do have folks, I know your team's here, uh, I believe Civil Service Commission uh, representatives here as well. Uh, my understanding is you'll be presenting on behalf of all the departmental re uh, responses, right? Yes, right. I, and I just, uh, to give you just sort of a sense of where we're going, um, I'm not here to delve into specific hiring issues on any particular occupation or department with the city. I'm trying to give this committee and everybody in the audience a general overview of how, of the changes we're trying to make and the progress that we see from a central agency perspective that applies to the entire city. Thank and uh, I'll just say that we welcome, uh, if this committee remains interested in wanting to track our progress, we're more, uh, as you know, we're more than happy to come back and continue to report on these issues. Um, so we um, are going to be um, covering the following topics. The outcomes that we've seen to date um, as measured by the number of applications that we've received, um, the changes in the vacancy rate and the time that it has taken us to, the changes in the time to fill positions. Um, this shows here um, our key indicators. They're all moving, as you can see, in the right direction. Um, our applications are up substantially. Our vacancy rates and our time to hire have dropped. Next slide, please. 
Two of the improvements that I want to draw this committee's attention to are the increase in our applications. It's shown here in the chart on the left. And our hiring volumes um, compared to um, uh, 2022, um, year over year change, we've seen an average monthly increase um, of 46% more applications received, 26 uh, percent more hires made and as of this report um, from December per 1st we have 500 additional permanent civil service jobs in the offer stage um, so this gives you the sense of the magnitude of the human resources work that teams across the entire city are currently conducting next slide please The um, increase in our hiring volume has had a significant impact on our permanent um, full-time equivalent vacancy rate. In a little over a year, that rate has decreased by 28%. Um, we have gone from a high uh, in our full-time vacancies from a little over 14% to now down to just above 10%. And uh, I want to stress for this committee that this is against a much higher base that has grown significantly over the last few years. Since 2020, the city has added over 2,300 positions. So our department and our human resource staffs across the whole city have been uh, running with the target continuing to move. Um, as the goalpost moves, we're trying to do what we can to keep up with it. Um, hence our focus on some really systematic changes in order to be able to keep up. So we think that we've achieved quite a bit of progress since the time of this report. Um, our, um, our time to um, f f uh, fill permanent civil service uh, vacancies has decreased by 23%. Everybody's aware of that earlier number of 255 days uh, to um, fill permanent civil service positions. That number has now re uh, uh, been reduced to under 200 days to 197 days. Obviously, we still have quite a bit more progress to be made. But again, I want to emphasize this is on full-time permanent civil service positions. It does not encompass the shorter timelines um, for exempt employment, for provisional employment, which is also a competitive process that we've been utilizing recently, um, and other types of um, uh, charter authorized hiring that we've been doing. Um, again, I want to also emphasize another point, which is many of the jobs that are permanent civil service jobs are promotive in nature and hence are uh, coveted by existing city employees seeking promotions. Um, many of the civil service rules, and we're gonna talk more about it, really speak to how to ensure that we have complete fairness in the process, especially in promotive opportunities. Uh, let's have the sl next slide, please. This committee knows that over a year ago we formed a team with the controller's office and the city administrator's office um, to address 
various administrative issues stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, this, this work continues. It's called our Government Operations Recovery Initiative. Many of the issues addressed in the Civil Grand Jury's report are the same issues that we at DHR are working on in the context of gov uh, Government Operations Recovery. Um, the areas for intervention that are shown on this slide are our own work processes. These are things that we control administratively at DHR and across city departments. Um, there's a lot of work that has gone into that and will continue to go into that. The middle box really has to do with the civil service rules and the reforms that we're working collaboratively with the commission um, to, um, to make. And finally, and underlying all of this is the investments that the city has supported in our technology. These are long overdue investments and uh, we're, we're working to bring these to the fore into our hiring process. Next slide, please. Okay. The um, civil service reforms, I wanna talk a little bit about that. You've heard a lot about this. Um, in late 2022, um, Department of Human Resources proposed changes to nine areas within the civil service rules. This was the first uh, tranche of changes that we're seeking. Um, I just want to give the committee just a little bit of background here, which is that the Civil Service Commission is assigned very specific duties and powers by the Charter in Section 10.101 of the Charter in which the commission is required to set ground rules on the administration of the city's um, merit-based hiring system. Um, those rules are contained in four volumes applying to general government positions, uniformed ranks within the police department and fire department respectively, and then finally for service critical positions in the municipal transportation agency. These rules uh, parallel each other fairly closely uh, but taken together, it is an extensive body of work, um, and we've launched an effort with the commission to review, to do a top-to-bottom review of these rules, and we're moving judiciously through the process of applying basic principles where the rules add value. Um, we want to keep them um, where they're causing delay and causing time and not adding sufficient bear, uh value or seeking to either amend them or remove them. Um, our guiding principles here really are removing barriers to hiring, aligning these rules with our uh, investments in technology, uh, making the processes faster, uh, providing greater flexibility for specific recruitment needs, and providing clarity and consistency in language that needs review. We've already uh, been successful in making, working with the commission and making some immediate changes in issues such as minimum posting, uh, the application of promotional points, um, allowing extensions of eligible lists in specific conditions, and we're now currently um, in discussions with labor over our next tranche of rules around um, how seniority works um, in the context of making appointments and on uh, a challenging topic, um, certification rules. In other words, once an exam is given and a list is established, um, 
what are the rules in which uh, the hiring departments have to operate to make selections off those lists. Uh, next slide, please. Okay. Um, to make these advancements, each step in the hire, hiring process, we believe, needs retooling. Um, we're working on all of them. Outreach, um, we're making our job descriptions more candidate-friendly and more marketable um, to use in online uh, job portals. For any of you who, for example, are on LinkedIn, you will see um, uh, constant uh, messaging about uh, positions available within city government. Um, we haven't done that before. Typically, you know, we have over the years I've been here, we have much more of a field of dreams. We'll post it on a board or internally in City Hall, and we just expect people to come. Um, we've really uh, changed the whole narrative where we're now putting our what we need and our needs out into the world um, in the ways that people now see them. And that work, work will continue. Um, in terms of the actual giving of the, the exams, our method up until now has been mass exams. We gather people in rooms, we proctor them. They're often offered every so often, and if you miss the chance, you're not on the list. We're moving towards uh, using our technology to be able to provide online on-demand, meeting people where they are, um, and being able to get people through the initial assessment as quickly as we can through these methods. Um, selection, this is one somebody actually has um, been deemed to have met the minimum qualifications and passed the first line of assessment. They now have to actually be selected. Um, the grand jury covered this point. Um, we are um, working, uh, trying to um, create more systems there by having common questions that get asked, by having banks of questions. We already require our panel members to sit for certain specific training that they can take online. We're going to be advancing that. Um, and we are um, finally in the, um, the vetting stage. This is once a candidate has been assessed and selected, we then have to go through either background, medical, reference checks, and we're looking to both uh, rationalize that and automate it wherever possible. We're in the process right now of, of procuring new software to automate communication with prior employers to do background to do um, that portion of it, the reference checks. Um, I just want to highlight um, one area that we have worked on this year, um, recent improvements that we've made in a series that many of you are familiar with, administrative analysts. These are general uh, professional level jobs around the city that perform a wide variety of analytical functions in finance, contracting, policy, um, human resources, and the gen of various general government activities. Um, we have made reforms at every step of the process. We've worked closely with labor, um, representing administrative analysts. Um, at the time that we got started with this work, we had over 20% vacancy rate in those classifications. Um, we first started by updating minimum qualifications to make it easier for people to be considered for these jobs. That, that first stage, along with most of the rest of them, required negotiations with, with uh, uh, the represented labor organization. Um, 
we then administered online on-demand exam with thousands of candidates. This required a change to the certification rule. We can't really use that method without being able to have something called rule of the list in which everybody on the list is uh, can be considered for the position by the hiring department. This again required, under the civil service rules, required union concurrence to be able to do that. Um, we coordinated all the interview panels across the city. We had hundreds of subject matter experts. Um, we did this in a very structured manner, and then the uh, offers were made. We cut the hiring time in half. We made our first batch of hires in under 100 days. I know it's not 60 that the uh, grand jury is seeking, um, but a lot of that involved front-end work, and we believe that it, it will be possible as we use this method more and more across the city that we can get closer to the aspirational goal um, as we cut the time. And finally, I just want to tell you a little bit about what we're working on now. Um, we have upcoming projects on um, building our pools of interested in candidates in city employment. Uh, it's essentially a pre-application um, approach where people can express interest and then we can be in touch with them as opportunities arise. Um, we are uh, expanding our use of online testing methods tailored by class. I think I talked about that already. We're working, as um, the grand jury has pointed out, on improving the interview process. This is going to include uh, expanded training, um, having common questions, and question. Uh, have, one of the things that slows down hiring is when every hiring panel and every hiring manager has to write all their own questions. We're going to have banks of questions that could be drawn from. I think it both speeds the time up, but it also creates some consistency across the department about the types of things that we're looking for. Um, we are going to continue to work on civil service reform so that we can align the rules with our advances in technology uh, to give the appropriate flexibility. Um, and then, um, again, as pointed out by the grand jury, we're in the process of launching the People Analytics Portal. This will include numerous dashboards that will detail how the hiring process is evolving for anybody to see. Um, and um, we're excited about these changes. We're confident if we keep them up that uh, you will see these key metrics to uh, continue to improve um, and to ensure that the city has the staffing it needs to deliver its critical services. That is, concludes our formal presentation. We're here to answer any questions, comments, and again, welcome the continuing involvement of this committee in our work. Thank you, Director Eisen. Uh, Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Chair Preston. Um, according to the Civil Grand Jury Report, um, part, of the, part of the frustration is also the process is not very transparent to candidates. And, and I can imagine that. I, I was one of them. Uh, long ago, um, and that, um, and and I do want to say along the way, though the city and thank you, Director Eisen, um, have made significant improvement. I uh, especially the online process became uh, just better and more transparent, and I, I do think that one of the things that uh, was kind of 
create that lack of the, the impression of lack of transparency and com is the communication piece, meaning a candidate, they submit an application or, or submit uh, a, a process. It wasn't communicated, there was not a auto, be it auto response or some kind of response helping them to set expectation for the timeline. And, and so it's like, Am I going to hear back in two weeks? Am I going to hear back in three months? Like, what's happening there? Um, so I think my question is, what is the communications like now? Because I have not been a candidate <laughs> anymore. But just uh, what is the process of communications like? And what is the content of communications, whether or not there is a timeline indications about next steps? Just going to provide a general answer. This, this is a pretty detailed conversation, but um, when we um, made the decision to move towards a new technology platform called Smart Recruiters, it's a very, it's very powerful. Um, we're learning it, and we're tailoring it to our needs. One of the things that it does is it allows us to communicate back and forth with both our pre-applicants, the ones that go into these things called talent pools, I spoke a little bit about that, and then our applicants themselves once they're in the process. Um, we're, this is an area of improvement for us where we use that ability uh, more effectively. It really requires um, you know, a whole rethinking for the whole HR group around all the city departments to make sure we have some consistency in our back and forth about what the candidates can expect. They do. They are now getting, candidates are now getting auto feedback uh, through the system. Um, we'd really like to improve that to have much greater uh, continuing communication. I will say that when we have Mast exams, and especially for entry-level positions where the barriers to entry are pretty low, we're sometimes dealing with literally thousands of candidates. So that personal touch that one might expect becomes a little more challenging. This is a big employer. We have over 35,000 employees, and um, you see the hiring volumes that um, we're dealing with on a regular basis. So currently, though, it means that even these, some of these auto-responses does not indicate a timeline for next step. Like, you, you should expect to hear from us about whether you now have, that, that you will be eligible or that, you know, the next step is you should expect two weeks, three weeks. We do not have something like that right now. Uh, I can respond to that after we have, have an opportunity to discuss this with my staff. Again, I Great. know we have capacity within the system. Um, not every job is made the same. Again, we do masked we do masked candidate review, and then we have more specific, more tailored that probably does allow more specific communication with the candidates. I feel like your team of experts ready yes. to answer that question. Good morning, Supervisor Chan, uh, Chair Preston, uh, Member uh, Stephanie, Kate Howard uh, from DHR. As Director Eisen correctly pointed out, our uh, current applicant tracking system does allow for the kind of communication that you're describing, which allows for uh, candidates to hear uh, when they apply about how long, what the timeline is. Um, we have uh, provided guidance to departments to um, give that information to candidates and set up those automated notifications 
Um, and I think that is happening much more broadly than it ever happened before. We can continue to um, uh, work with departments, each of which has their own hiring authority, to follow the new guidelines that we've set, which really are about communicating with candidates, bringing more transparency to the process so that people know you've applied for a job, the exam is going to be scheduled in a week, a month, two months, and how long it takes to hear back once you've participated in the exam. The other thing I would um, highlight is that our work to bring um, online on-demand exams into our mix of tools allows for candidates to um, apply for a job, be evaluated in terms of whether they meet the minimum qualifications for that job within two weeks, and then to, within another 10 days, take the exam on their own timeline. And so they know that they're both eligible for a job, that they've passed the test and that they can be considered for a job within uh, one month. And so that's a very significant improvement. And so there's a lot more communication between the applicant and the city department that potentially can hire them. Thank you for the question. Thank you. And, and again, um, through the chair. Um, so I just want to confirm. So what you're saying is when applicants submit an application, and this is across the board, and because we're also trying to understand, is it does it vary in, from city department to city department? So even applicant, if an applicant submit an application, and then uh, we are going to, they are going to hear back and say whether they're eligible for to take an exam within two weeks, and then then within that time frame, they can take the exam in their own pace within that 10 days, and after, then when do they get the exam results and, and be able to know what the next steps are, or, or how does that work? Um, thank you for the question, Supervisor Chan. Um, the example that you're describing is one type of exam that we're um, really working hard to advance. It's called continuous testing. Um, that is a small fraction of the types of exams that we're currently doing. Um, and it's part of how we think we're going to make uh, even more progress on uh, completing the, reducing the time to hire. Um, so that is the case um, for those exams. Um, I think, as I said earlier, there is some variation from the departments to departments in terms of what their follow-up uh, looks like. Um, and it's a place where we, and I think Carol referenced this, it, uh, are working closely to help our HR analysts throughout the city build their skills and learn how to um, uh, utilize the technology we have and change our approach from an approach that really um, assumed that people would just wait mm -hmm. for a job with the city. We know we're in a very talent, uh, competitive talent marketplace, and we need to be proactively engaging with people who are interested in working for us. And so again, through the chair, I, I think then here's my feedback. I, I, uh, the question that, and, and the feedback, and also I, I think it's actually part of what the civil grand jury report is saying that can we set a timeline and set a deadline for a standard timeline across the city um, to respond to the applicants, explaining the timeline for hiring so the applicants can decide on their own whether they're gonna stick with this process or not. Uh, because I, I also believe that their applicants have different circumstances. Some, sometimes people are actually holding on to one job as they seek another, and therefore it allows them a time 
but, but just everybody have different life circumstance. And I just wanted to finish another um, follow-up question so that you can answer all at once. Uh, it will be extended to also um, this eligible uh, list and how do we make sure that we be, have a more robust process for the eligible list both in qualification timeline as well as um, either expansion of it or retention of the eligible list that both the quality of the candidates remain and the number of the uh, number and quality and qualifications of the candidates either remain or even expand uh, of in the in the pool instead of only when I think right now it seems to me, also according to the report and, and, and just me knowing that process, seems the eligible list is only when you need it, then you go to it, and then then you find out whether what the list actually looked like. So how do we make sure in, it's up to date? That's, that's all I'm gonna ask. Okay, Thank I'll start you. with the first question first. We could certainly work towards creating some standardization in, in initial responses to um, candidates. Again, with some nuance because we have, uh, you know, myriad of departments in multiple disparate business lines, a lot of varying needs, and uh, different labor markets that they operate in. So we can provide guidelines, and from the DHR perspective, we've now have long, you know, work groups, long standing work groups that we work with across the key city agencies. Um, making sure that, you know, training people, working through issues, trying to establish some of these standards. It, so, in other words, it's really a matter of trying to move the whole organization, not just simply a matter of me signing a memo, making orders. Um, I just don't think we're going to get there in this way. So, we're happy to report our progress to this committee as we continue that work. Um, but I would say that to both you and to the grand jury, we've, we share that goal of improving the candidate's experience and we think it's the first pass at any candidate getting a look at us as an employer and if they have a good experience on the front end it's going to set them up to have a good experience as they go through their careers here so it's an important goal for ours as well second question um it was a multi-part question but i'll just answer it in the way that i i, th I think you're seeking um, and limit my response to the continuous online on-demand examinations that we think is the way to go for um, um, uh, general classifications where there are many positions across the city and especially where it's an entry level uh, first step into city government that um, the idea of the continuous exam is that the list is constantly refreshed because anybody who's interested in, a, in pursuing a position in, say, 1822 administrative analyst can just go in, take the test, they get slotted onto this list, and the pool is continually refreshed. Um, departments then have a big list. Um, that's the point at which the departments would need to clearly identify what are the specifics of what they're seeking. We need people who are who have, are interested in finance and have done a certain amount of X, Y, and Z so that they can then take a, a large massed group and narrow it down to the people who actually, through their application, have demonstrated either some interest or some prior experience or uh, coursework or whatever it is. Um, but the, the list itself would be constantly refreshed and not become one of the concerns 
generally is that these lists, once given, they become stale in the sense that people move on. You know, they make it, they don't get a job, and they're gone, and then we're sort of stuck with this thing for a couple of years. There's not much we can do about it. Um, so this allows us to be able to do that, and I uh, just want to thank the work working with the Civil Service Commission. I know their uh, executive director is here today, Sandra Ng, um, who have you know, fully embraced these concepts and working with us. I hope that is responsive. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. Um, I have some questions as well. Um, I want to note that, I mean, this, this covers a lot of ground, so, uh, and we are not going to cover in detail all these things here at this hearing today, or we would be here all day and not get to the rest of our agenda. Um, that said, we have ongoing communications with Director Eisen and her team at, on many of these issues as they come up. They come up in the context of approving MOUs and what's in MOUs, uh, in retention issues. I, so we, we address these uh, and are in dialogue with DHR, and this committee will continue to do that. I want to thank you for uh, your, your always uh, open door and uh, willingness to meet and, and brief our office on, on these issues on an ongoing basis. I also want to note that a number of our Colleagues have interest in particular departments and have in the past held hearings. We had a specific hearing around uh, that Supervisor Safai held around vacancies in, uh, in, among nurses. Uh, you know, different supervisors have done those, and those uh, can can and I'm sure will happen in the future as well. So my questions are actually pretty focused and tailored to some of the things that have come up around uh, this report um, that I just wanted to, to get some clarification on. So um, first off, just so we're all dealing with the accurate information, current vacancy rate, according, it looks like in your chart we're down from a year ago, 14% to 10, about 10%, is that? 10.2. 10.2. Again, yeah. limited to permanent, to full-time FTEs. Got it. Thank you. And then... Um, is there a target uh, the, in the findings and some of the responses? I was a bit of a back and forth around what the t what the target is. Like when we, if we're back here in December, 2024, what is the departmental goal of what that figure will be? So it's a, I think it's a pretty nuanced discussion. It has a lot of different elements to it, which is why the civil grand jury's recommendation of trying to achieve a specific numeric goal, I think is, would be challenging for, um, especially for the mayor and the board of supervisors. Um, I don't think it's so much driven by DHR's work. I, I think in large, you have, for example, attrition rates that you set in the budgets that you adopt. Uh, that rate is historically run around 7%. Um, obviously our vacancy rate during the pandemic, which I think was a very, uh, is not, really indicative of what life of city employment is like over a long stretch of time. We were dealing with a very specific period of time and we're still dealing with the tail liabilities from there and some of our key occupational areas that I know this committee has been interested in and we're happy to participate in other hearings about. Um, but uh, between attrition, uh, variances in how positions are budgeted, on budget, off budget, um, seasonal work, um, setting a, a goal, just picking a number and setting a goal becomes, I think, problematic. It's something that um, we uh, 
take direction from from this board and from the mayor in which I think the budget in many ways drives thank you I, I I get I do get the complexities I just I would suggest and particularly for the public that that while there are many factors and we all know there are many factors that can interfere with meeting goals that I think it 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 could be helpful to have more of a target set um, and and certainly from an oversight perspective it, it you know then frames the conversation if we're hitting those goals right I mean the numbers I've seen is it, you know running about seven percent vacancy before the pandemic surging to 14 percent vacancy Correct. in the pandemic this is without getting into what the longer conversation of why and the many factors including a global pandemic and shifts in job we know is not simple um, but then I think the grand, so grand jury was requesting a, a target of about 5% um, and there was a reluctance to, to commit to that. So I, I don't want to, I mean, I understand the, at the, this point, the, the, it sounds like there's not a comfort stating a goal for that overall rate. Um, I just don't want to speak for you, but that's what I'm I, I would just say that for us, our very general benchmark is that 7% number that was the attrition number that that was our historic number. I will say that in uh, looking across um, all of our occupational families, um, uh, vacancies in particular occupations are still driving this number. I think we've largely seen uh, moving very much in the direction of recovery in many of our occupations at this point. And it's not a reason to take our foot off the pedal. We still, the, the whole approach to hiring in the city and the tools that we use to do it and the approaches that our HR staffs and our appointing officers take are very much in need of retooling. I think we all recognize that. Um, we've reorganized DHR around these basic guiding principles, and I'll just take this moment to thank all of the DHR staff that's here, uh, led uh, largely by our managing deputy Kate Howard, in the seer, in the both our systems efforts and our operational efforts to improve the whole situation. But if we were to Thanks. pick a number, it would be that seven percent. But again, I think that's a nuanced number that has a lot of interaction with budgeting. That, and, thank you, and th that's very helpful. I mean, I think it at least yeah. sets a shorter to medium term goal of trying to. Uh, return to that pre-pandemic vacancy rate. And, and my last question on this topic is longer term. Once we've succeeded in doing that, um, is, is, there a, is there a longer term goal of what is just a healthy vacancy rate for a municipality to have? I'm, you know, I, I do a lot of work around the you know, residential housing market, and there's always discussion of like what's just a natural and normal vacancy rate uh, that we are strive, you know, that that I'm, you strive for in a market. I, I'm just curious if, as as all these issues are solved and we're looking further down the road, and 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 you've been doing this a long time, like what what's more optimal? I mean, is it down to zero? Is that that where, or or is there just a, a sort of accepted? Uh, you're, even in, even if you deal with all these obstacles, you're looking at X percent that we're trying to get. One to. of the things our systems team is able to do is benchmarking work, and that is something we can, they're hearing you now, and that is some work that we could look at and provide some res uh, more uh, season structured response to the committee on the issue of natural 
attrition and what makes sense. But it, once you get down to certain numbers, I think it's largely a budgetary. It's driven budgetarily. I will say that uh, we've looked closely at how to evaluate vacancies. It's not, it sounds easier than it actually is because of all the empl employment types that we have across the city that are all authorized in charter, by the way, and all have their reasons. Um, and variances across city departments in how they they budget based on their specific business needs. So it's uh, we can report in more detail on that if this committee would wish to pursue that question. Thank you very much. Um, next question, um, dashboard for information to the public. Why can't we launch a, a public dashboard that would give the public information by department a lot of the information that gets presented when we hold a hearing uh, but why can that just well i shouldn't say why can it not happen because i assume it can uh, why can we not have a timeline for launching a public dashboard thank you for the question chair preston kate howard um we are uh, as director eisen noted um, preparing some uh, dashboards with our with our team and look forward to working with the controller's office to um, identify a, a way to make that information public um, that doesn't um, harm employee confidentiality. Certainly one. And happy to yeah. uh, uh, provide you with a um, timeline. I believe it can be done within the next six months. Great. Thank you. And, and I think it's really important for people to be able to see that information by department. Um, and also one of the issues uh, that is raised in the civil grand jury report is around uh, how much of the work through all these vacancies ends up getting filled by temporary exempt employees or by contracting out. Um, I, that might be an additional level of nuance, but I, I think it would be important as we build out the dashboard to find a way to communicate that to, like, I, I just don't think most people uh, in San Francisco, particularly those who want a robust uh, public sector uh, with job opportunities for permanent employment with the city. I, I don't think people are aware of what I know Civil Service Commission and others are, are grappling with all the time, uh, but just at a service level, you know, we have, for example, huge vacancies in Department of Public Works. We have a lot of folks who are contracted with the city through community benefit districts, through other other non-city uh, employment, but with city funds that are performing that work. There's no way for the public that I'm aware of to really see that, right? To see here are the vacancies and here's the work, right? That is, be here's a vacancy where this job's just not happening because no one's filling it and it's not contracted out, right? That's, that's one thing that the public should see. But here's another position and I mean an aggregate for the department, right? Here's another set of you know, 200 positions where that work is actually being contracted out and being performed by CBDs and others. I, I think that information, it might be a little more nuanced and, and, uh, but, and I'm happy to work with you on that, but I, I would hope we could also be sharing that on a department, department uh, by department basis with the public. I understand the concept and look forward to working with your office yeah. to think it through. Great, thank you. Um, the civil grand jury found severe understaffing at DHR and in the human resources divisions of our various uh, departments. Um, is that in the process of being addressed? I just, I, it, it goes without saying that it seems impossible to have long-term solutions to hiring 
around the city if we don't have sufficient HR staff to manage and perform Understood. all that work. So can you just, uh, in Music terms of what progress ears. we're making there? And before we get to it, I just want to comment about public works. Oh, it's sure. one of the agencies that we've been working very closely with, and um, they've been using all the tools in our toolbook that we've been recommend in our toolbox that we've been recommending, and I believe uh, many of their vacancies, especially in terms of street cleaning and so forth, are have been filled or are in the process of being filled. We've also been working in close collaboration with the laborers union that represents many of those people. So I just wanted yes. to make sure Thank that you. that was stated. Um, we have used this same uh, continuous online on-demand testing process to fill many of our HR vacancies. We welcome more, but we have to leave within our means. But we've uh, we had to start there in order to be able to do the other things. We have to have the people. Um, one of the things I mentioned, the growth in city positions, city workforce and the demand on our human resources staff has grown and the, the pool of people to actually do the work was stagnant. We really had to correct that problem and I believe we largely have. Thank you. Uh, two more questions. One is clarification um, was requested on the response to recommendation 5.2, just are you able to give a timeline? That was um, the recommendation to, to collaborate with public employee, employee unions to develop recruiting and apprenticeship plans um, for 2024-2025. Fiscal year said it had not been implemented but will in the future, which was pretty open-ended, and I heard a request for if there's any sort of time frame for that work, or is that just ongoing work? Um. We could perhaps amend our response, but I think this committee knows our work with organized labor is continuous and ongoing. We cover a wide variety of topics from rates to classifications to selection methods to training methods. We've recently, again, using a, our most recent example, completed a, a complete overhaul and reinvigoration of our um, three subcrafts represented by the laborers union and have uh, new state certified apprenticeships in laborer, uh, gardener, and on the verge of finishing up the work in the arborist classification. So um, we have a, a work training program that we've developed with SEIU. It's a longstanding program. We've brought some new life into it to uh, provide opportunities for city employees to uh, use part of their work time to go back to school to get education to, to put them in the position to promote this is used by lvns to become rns and others um, so we have a number of activities around the city that we do the more resources that we have the more we can do and we can also leverage our existing resources to do more we have a a group within our workforce development division that does nothing but apprenticeship um, mostly focused on maintenance crafts, um, but we've expanded the concept out into general city government. Great, thank you, and I, and, and I won't go through each of these, I will, I will make just the comment on them that, you know, I, it, this, this report does not call for the board to respond. There are no recommendations directed to the Board of Supervisors. When there are in reports, we usually try to, as best we can, to, set the, some timelines around, and, and there are a number of the responses that I know the work's ongoing. I know from our communications um, and from conversations with labor, but a bunch of these, the, the responses from the administration are, are 
We haven't done this, we'll do it in the future, and I just wanna, wanna suggest on those, the more we can get timelines, uh, you know, it makes it easier from an oversight perspective to see how we're doing uh, later with more concrete timelines. Thank you. Um, last question before, from me at least, uh, unless my colleagues have other questions, uh, before we go to public comment. Um, there, was, uh, there was some discussion in the, in the Civil Grand Jury report around the timeline for mayoral approval of, um, of departments hiring. Can you just clarify when mayoral approval is required and then why it takes more than the five days, the, the, the recommendation of civil grand jury was to reduce the timeline for mayoral approval to five business days and the response uh, from DHR and the mayor's office was that that's not a uh, realistic timeline or it can't be done within that timeline. So if you could elaborate when's, when's the approval required and why we can't do it within five business days. Thank you for the question, Supervisor Preston. Um, <clears throat> so this is regarding the approval of um, what we call the request to fill. So it's basically the approval um, that's needed for a department to begin a recruitment. Um, today, uh, every position in the city is, uh, requires approval from the mayor's office in order to proceed with filling. And um, that is, I believe, due to um, a close focus on budgetary constraints. Um, in terms of the timeline that it takes, I think it does vary from de department to department um, and uh, based on the analysis that the mayor's office is doing with respect to those positions. Okay, I I'm just gonna suggest, I don't know what the, the history and requirements are around why that process, it, it, if that is a process subject to modification, it might be something we want to talk about. For example, when appointments come through the board, it used to take a long time because every appointment would get scheduled for a hearing, and the board then just changed our process and, and on some of it, where some things just basically get approved on a quicker timeline unless uh, one of the supervisors says, I want a hearing on this. Uh, and I do question if every, every position is requiring mayoral approval and if apparently that's taking can be many weeks to get that. Um, is there, I don't know if there's a legal impediment to doing this, but it would seem to me if we had a system that said within five business days, eight business days, 10, but whatever, it's deemed approved unless there's an objection that could really speed things along. Is, is that possible or at least something that we can discuss further? Um, the, um when the city's um, position vacancy rate was at 14 percent, um, a much smaller number of positions required uh, second additional approval by the mayor's office. Uh, they essentially did what you described and deemed them approved um, with a more limited review. Um, the change that I, the, the current situation that I described is um, something that has been reinstated more recently due to the financial condition of the city. Due to? The financial outlook of the city. I see, okay. Um, thank you for that clarification and for your work, uh, Ms. Howard. And um, unless there are other questions or comments from colleagues, let's open this item up to public comment. <clears throat> yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this item should line up to speak now along the curtain wall. All speakers will have two minutes to speak. 
Good morning, members of the board. Good morning, everyone. My name is Omar Fall, and I'm the San Francisco Field Director. Uh, my comment today is uh, about this expediting the hiring process. Uh, what we heard this morning uh, is very encouraging from the, the board and uh, what DHR presented. Uh, their recommendations are in line with us, and we are pleased to see that they are progress. But we do have concern regarding this process that's taken too long. Uh, the city has promised for many years to hire permanent employees, but instead they've been, hired, they've been hiring uh, temporary people or contractors, which kind of uh, deal with the, re the retention issue because those are limited uh, employment, six months or whether two years or so. But what we have noticed is the process that's taken too long. And, uh, we were pleased to see that it's being reduced to uh, 60 days, and there's an attempt to reach the 120 days, whatever that is, but 60 days will be the best. Uh, the process is too long. There are too many steps between phases, and sometimes there's a lack of response between agencies that causes the problem. No one can afford to wait 150 days to, to be hired. Uh, there's also a lack of communication. Applicants cannot uh, have, cannot talk to anyone. They have no way of finding out where the applications are. Uh, but what we want to emphasize is that in order to recruit, we need to do a better job at changing the system. Public sector employ, uh, employers have tendency to rely on the pension, but due to the pension reform in the last 15 years, it's no longer appealing. And we need to do a better job to become, at becoming a better employer. Recruit is very competitive. And uh, I like the fact Speaker that- time has elapsed. Thank you. We like the Thank fact you. that the city wants to collaborate with the, the union, so we welcome that as well. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Are there any other speakers, public commenters on this matter? If you don't mind, you can line up at this time along the side of the room by the windows. Hi, I am Sandra Ng, the Executive Director of the Civil Service Commission. The Civil Service Commission would truly like to thank the Civil Grand Jury for their very thorough, in-depth report. The Commission uh, was very impressed with their findings and uh, made a point of discussing this at a Civil Service Commission meeting so the public could hear the Commission's response and their concerns. I do want to emphasize that uh, as DHR is already working on a plan, the Civil Service Commission already had in their strategic plan to work more with the hiring managers. In fact, we have already started visiting departments, conducting training, giving them a better understanding of how they can hire and also expand on racial equity, follow compliance with their own racial equity action plans. And it's amazing that they've learned that um, they can do so without even the rules changing. They just were not aware of the full understanding and what they have available to them. Unions, we are also conducting trainings with the unions who have also asked us to explain to the representatives on the different types of appointments that are available and how they can be in compliance. And many of the unions will refer their members to speak with our office directly. And um, Supervisor Chen, you are correct, in person, uh, when they can speak with a person who has the knowledge and experience, it really opens up and it really encourages them to pursue growth in the city. Thank you. 
Thank you. Are there any other public commenters on this matter? I believe there are no additional public commenters. I believe we can uh, close public comment. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. Um, I want to thank uh, everyone who participated uh, in this hearing. And as I mentioned, unlike the prior civil grand jury reports, we heard this one does not call for specific Board of Supervisor uh, responses or recommendation for any legislation. Obviously, if that changes and the department feels that there are barriers that need to be addressed legislatively, our door is always open. And I just last thing want to invite uh, DHR to please provide information um, and outreach materials, not just to our office, but to all the supervisors. I think um, one way that supervisors office can be helpful. We all have pretty huge email lists and do social media and so forth. And uh, if you can give us uh, the, the best content to share with our thousands of constituents, uh, to encourage them uh, to work for the city. Uh, please do that and we are happy to distribute it. But I will end there uh, and move to, uh, well, and thank once again the civil grand jury members, many of whom are here today. Thank you for all your hard work. Um, and I want to uh, make a motion uh, to file this item. Uh, yes, on the motion uh, to file the matter, uh, heard and filed. Vice Chair Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. The motion passes without objection. Thank you. Uh, motion passes. Uh, next uh, item, please call item two. Yes, next on the agenda is item number two, is a hearing on the 2022-2023 civil grand jury report entitled Hitting the Performance Bullseye, Contracting for Better Outcomes in Homelessness Services. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Um, colleagues, this civil grand jury reports primarily about monitoring the performance of our homelessness-related uh, service contracts. Um, and uh, as you may know, last year, civil grand jury presenters also looked into city homelessness response. We had a hearing on that. Um, and it is safe to say this topic remains timely and extremely important. Um, so I, no doubt that all of us are united in wanting to make sure that these contracts are uh, adequately monitored and that we're using the city's resources strategically to ensure the well-being of all of our residents, uh, in, in particular uh, our residents who are most vulnerable and uh, living on the streets. Uh, with an ultimate goal of ending homelessness in our city. Uh, with that, I would like to welcome uh, our civil grand jury presenter for this item, uh, Rick Ulrich. Welcome, you have up to 10 minutes. If you don't mind talking into the microphone. Oh, sure. Okay, thank you. Um, thanks very, very much for your time this morning. Uh, as Stan mentioned uh, when he introduced me, my name is Rick Ulrich. Uh, I'm here to present the jury's investigative report hitting the performance bullseye, which was a look into contracting practices at the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. Um, first of all, I really need to take the time to thank all of the individuals that we interacted with at HSH to a person uh, they were available, they were very open in their comments with us, they were re very responsive to our request, 
And we definitely had the impression that they are very dedicated to their work of providing the best services possible to the city's homeless. Um, with that, I'd like to uh, next provide uh, a little bit of background. And I suspect much of the background is very familiar to the supervisors, but I think it's important in establishing some context uh, for why the jury chose to look at this topic and later on a framework for the uh, findings and recommendations. So uh, very quickly, HSH is formed in 2016. My, my kind of thought process is that it was kind of like grabbing a tiger by the tail. The demand for services was exploding. Uh, the amount of money that needed to be spent was growing. Uh, the number of contracts and the number of providers were increasing dramatically. Uh, so into that environment, HSH stepped and it had to develop a new structure and a new organization. Went through some management and staffing challenges and ultimately had to deal with uh, the pandemic. So given that environment, given the challenges that it faced, HSH has unquestionably delivered significant accomplishments. Uh, and it points to uh, topics like housing and sheltering 15,000 individuals every night, uh, helping 8,000 households exit homelessness over a three-year period uh, ending in January 2022. That being said, uh, the average San Franciscan isn't exposed to that information. That typical person draws their perception, their reality, uh, from looking at uh, the individuals that it sees every day on the street, particularly the chronically homeless, those individuals that are uh, vulnerable, uh, visible, uh, they suffer from mental health and substance abuse challenges, uh, and they aren't typically uh, helped by standard uh, intervent interventions. So that small subpopulation, about a third of the homeless population in total, for the average San Francisco represents the whole of homelessness. And if we look at that subpopulation uh, over time, uh, we can see why the average San Franciscan is concerned. There hasn't been a lot of change. Uh, things have trended up or remained stable uh, over time. So it's easy to see, quite frankly, why uh, the average person on the street might view HSH as a failing organization. Now, most recently in April, near the end of the civil grand jury's term, HSH introduced a new strategic, five-year strategic plan, uh, Home by the Bay, with five very ambitious goals to address, uh, to address homelessness. And the jury was very heartened to see that some of the issues identified by HSH dovetailed with things that the, the uh, jury was looking into. Uh, the jury really focused on the first two goals. Uh, goal number one is reducing homelessness by 15% and the unsheltered population by 50%. Goal two is reducing racial inequities, and uh, you know clearly the homeless crisis disproportionately impacts our most marginalized citizens. If we look at race, for example, if you take a look at black, African-American, and african uh, residents, they're disproportionately represented in homeless, over 30% of the homeless population versus 6% in San Francisco's population. Um, in addition, HSH is identifying strategies to improve outcomes for all subpopulations that are experiencing homeless, and it's identified 11 different subpopulations, including uh, uh, groups like veterans, older adults, 
uh, transgender and gender nonconforming uh, people. Uh, again, all groups that are overrepresented in the city's homeless. Supporting those goals are a number of action items in the plan. Of particular interest to the civil grand jury were the fact that uh, they want to strengthen the quality, diversity, and utilization of data. They want to enhance performance management and accountability, and they really want to address equity and justice-focused data and analysis. So we come to why did the civil grand jury focus on contracting at HSH? Uh, two key issues. Uh, it's critical in determining the and delivering quality services to the homeless, and separately, no doubt, it's a very significant budget item for, for the city. The objective of the investigation was to see if improvements in contracting could further contribute towards reducing homelessness, and whether the improvements in contracting could aid in efforts to help the chronically homeless and the various marginalized subpopulations. Uh, Results-based contracting, performance measurement, active contracting management, contract monitoring, uh, kind of all terms that are bantered about, but they all go to the same issue. They've all been focus of many city governments for an exceptionally long period of time. If we just look at results-based contracting, uh, it's best defined as having standardized outcome-driven objectives that are specific, that are measurable, that are actionable, that are relevant and that are time-bound and that go to supporting overall strategy. Very, very critical for HSH, I think, as it moves forward with its five-year plan in terms of being able to assess, adjust, and, re, uh, and redevelop strategy to help, help the city's homeless. From a contract monitoring standpoint, it's very much of a virtuous circle where increased contract monitoring to a point actually helps support and develop the community-based organizations that it works with. And in addition, uh, it gain, is able to gain insight from those organizations that further help refine strategy. So the investigation focus was to look at contracting practices to see if uh, in, increased, increased measures could deliver performance and value, if improving contract monitoring could increase collaboration with CBOs and strategically improve performance. And uh, ultimately, could improve contracting practices better measure and deliver services to those areas where they are needed most. Um, if we take a look at contracting practices, uh, they're not sexy. Uh, they don't grab eyeballs. Uh, they aren't the kind of things that stirs the soul. Uh, and consequently, they're easily backburnered, and they're easily put to the side. And we've seen that historically in San Francisco. The press has pointed out a number of times, and city audits have pointed out a number of times, where they, the city departments could benefit from better contracting practices and that those have not improved over time. When it comes to contracting, the actual activities that the uh, jury looked into, the uh, civil grand jury received a sampling of contracts from HSH and looked at service objectives and outcomes in the various contracts. Service objectives, think of those as activities, something like 
providing feedback, filling out forms, entering data into the one system. Uh, think of an objective as something that's more like the percent of people that uh, remain housed uh, after one year in time. So uh, outcomes are very impactful, results-oriented, where uh, service ob objectives are really activities. So we looked at a sampling of contracts, and in a significant number of those contracts, we found that the outcome objectives, those things that are meant to be impactful, more closely aligned with activities, like entering data into the one system. Uh, we you know, further substantiated that through our interviews with department personnel and through uh, the media and, and pre previous media reports and the 822 city auditors report, which address more citywide aspects. <clears throat> so the finding, the initial finding for that portion of the uh, investigation was that um, inconsistent use of specific results-based outcomes inhabits HSH's ability to measure and evaluate the success of programs and the performance of community-based organization. HSH agreed with that finding. Uh, they acknowledged inconsistent data across providers. Uh, they did point out, which the uh, civil grand jury also noted, that it had made a significant investment in uh, improving the backbone of data capture uh, through the, the one system that uh, community-based organizations use to interact with the uh, contract management system. Uh, and, and then, in addition, it said that moving forward, uh, it would develop standardized metrics to better evaluate program structure and performance. So HSH agreed that that was an issue and that uh, it, it agreed with the finding. Um, the recommendation coming out of that was that it worked with the Controller's Office and the Homeless Oversight Commission to develop and apply a set of consistently applied contract performance measures stating that it would accomplish this in the future. Um, so HSH in its response noted uh, that it, this fiscal year is going to develop a comprehensive more, uh, performance measurement plan to align outcomes with the uh, new Home by the Bay strategic plan. I think it's uh, important to note when we look at this activity, and certainly one of the reasons that more progress hasn't been made on this topic citywide in the past, it's not the kind of thing where you go home at night and turn off the lights and then you come back the next day and you switch on the lights and everything's fixed. It takes a long time. It takes a long time to uh, figure out the right objectives, to align to the uh, city's strategic plan. It takes a long time to implement that in existing contracts as well as a new contract. So HSH does point out that over, it's going to take over the next few years to update contract service and outcome objectives for all agreements. Uh, and lastly, because it takes a long time to uh, phase that in, if you will, uh, measures that are used to calculable on that data that's generated out of those outcomes isn't readily available initially. It, it's also going to take a period of time. Nonetheless, HSH agreed with the finding and agreed with and is moving uh, forward with implementing uh, the recommendation. So if we look at performance monitoring, uh, we again understood that uh, significant effort has been made to improve the structure of the one system. 
And uh, we have, through interviews, determined that uh, additional training now is necessary to work with the CBOs to make sure that the quality of data entered into the system is, is uh, accurate. Uh, it also addressed the fact that increased monitoring could potentially improve CBO performance. Uh, HSH agreed uh, with the finding in that regard and noted that when fully staffed, the contracts team would extend monitoring to organizations not meeting the contractors, uh, the controller's uh, funding threshold. So there are a significant number of contracts that fall below the $200,000 level. Uh, HSH will use a sampling methodology on that to uh, further uh, audit those organizations and monitor those organizations. Um, Separately, when it comes to uh, the contract monitoring, the recommendation, HHH noted that it had made significant progress and set up monitoring expectations in 22 and 23 and would implement agreements based on that and team manuals during this fiscal year. It further noted that in the first quarter of this year, it would, and I, I presume has been done, uh, would update the program agreement manual. It also stated that uh, would seek opportunities to minimize monitoring burden on CBOs while at the same term time increasing the quality of uh, CBO monitoring. Probably the area where we had the greatest disagreement uh, is the fact in improved data reporting and transparency. The civil grand jury determined that the city performance scorecard for homelessness made tracking the city's overall progress difficult. It didn't provide information on all the subpopulations of homeless individuals, and it didn't show changes uh, to the subpopulations over time. In the current environment, now this is, <laughs> this is uh, pulled off of the city performance scorecard a couple days ago, and it's a little bit unfair. Uh, it, the scorecard is undergoing a revision and it noted as going through an update uh, in November. But uh, the point is that early on you'd go to the city performance scorecard, you'd drill down to the homeless response system, you'd go to the homeless population and you would click on a link to get to the uh, embedded link to get to the interactive benchmarking dashboard. So if from the perspective of the uh, civil grand jury that was inadequate in terms of representing HSH's uh, progress to the public. HSH disagreed wholly uh, with this finding, and they basically said that the city scorecard doesn't reflect all of the metrics important to the city through HSH to monitor. We agree with that. We agree that HSH, and if you look at HSH's uh, website, they provide a tremendous amount of information on their operations. They're very transparent in terms of the data that they, in fact, capture. And they have stated that consistent with their uh, strategic plan, they, need to they will develop and provide and, uh, and track metrics that roll up to the strategic plan. They have stated that in November 2023, they seek, will seek to better align uh, their metrics with the Home by the Bay performance measurement plan. And lastly, they stated that the scorecard wasn't the appropriate place to track 
subpopulation data because there's too many subpopulations. Um, and they, for, in addition, have work to develop and formulating strategies. Um, from the jury's standpoint, we go back to uh, uh, a survey done by the San Francisco Chronicle in September of 2022. Uh, the Chronicle surveyed 1,600 residents, and they asked them, what's the number one priority for the city? And they, those residents identified homelessness as the number one uh, important issue for the city. Now, today that may be different. Maybe it's safety, maybe it's a city budget, but clearly homelessness is up there in terms of t being top of mind and things that residents are concerned about. Uh, the city performance scorecard to us is a place where a resident can reasonably expect to go to determine the city's health and its progress on basic initiatives. And as we've pointed out very early on, just to go back to the discussion of the chronically homeless and its marginalized subpopulation, for the typical person on the street, that is the homeless, and that is what they're expecting to find information on when they go to the city performance scorecard, and they expect to see it over time so they can see if HSH and the city is making any progress. It also gives HSH a tremendous opportunity to present its good work. It, it gives it a tremendous opportunity to frame all of the work of HSH, but it can't ignore adequately presenting information on uh, the chronically homeless and the marginalized subpopulations. Mr. Olk, I just do need to do a time check. I need you to, to wrap up in the next minute. Uh, minute or so. Thank yeah. you. Um, so in, in summary, uh, when you really need to focus on important uh, contracting practices, it'll uh, improve contract and contractor performance against goals. It'll improve contractor selection. It'll improve staff productivity. And it'll maximize the effective use and value of taxpayer funds. And it will also allow HSH to better focus and assess its strategy, particularly in dealing with the chronically homeless and its marginalized subpopulations. I would note that uh, really what we're talking about here in an uh, impactful objective is a basic building block. It's a contract outcome that goes to meaningful data that becomes quality information that enters into good strategy and allows HSH the ability to assess, adjust, and deliver successful uh, initiatives. Uh, HSH has developed a very ambitious five-year strategic plan. I've never seen a strategic plan that was five years that didn't change over time. There might be a black swan event that affects something that could be staffing, uh, it could be funding. Uh, we don't want to see uh, the improvements in contracting and, uh, perform and contract monitoring pushed to the wayside because they are the basic building blocks for everything else. So the last item here is actually incorrect. Uh, all of the uh, recommendations went to HSH working with the controller's office to better develop uh, contracting measures and contracting monitoring uh, standards and the data representation on the city performance scorecard. But the issue is there needs to be a timeline established, there need to be milestones, and HSH uh, should be held to accomplishing those because it's just too important to the city and to the homeless community moving forward. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mr. Ulrich, and uh, Supervisor Chan.
Thank you. Uh, through, um, through the chair, um, I would, um, would like to point to um, the civil grand jury report um, on the page 20 uh, that indicated that during the course of your investigation, you learned that in fiscal year 2022, uh, 85 nonprofit providers representing 318 agreements, and that is about roughly 280 million in contract value that was subjected to the, to the monitoring. So is this the, I just want to uh, understand, so is this just in fiscal year 2022 alone? So there are two statistics in the report, and I'm not sure which one you're referring to. One, uh, Sorry, if you can speak into the mic a little bit more. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Um, there's two stati statistics in the report, and I'm not sure in which one you're referring to. One, uh, took a look at data we got from the uh, PeopleSoft system uh, at the controller's office, which took a look at 2022 and all of the active contracts that were in place, which were either initiated in 2022 and, uh, but could have extended to 2030. And those contracts in total represented something like $2 billion of contract value. Uh, and then there was a separate statistic which referred to, I think it was uh, uh, 300 contracts, something like 85 Mm -hmm. uh, providers, mm -hmm. and as you pointed out, uh, I think it was $285 million, uh, in contract million. value. And that represents the dollar amount subject to the uh, controller's joint monitoring uh, task force. Understood. And so are you aware that um, the Department of uh, Homelessness, through your, during your course of investigation, does, is the civil grand jury aware that the department actually has a what we call a sole source authority, meaning they, they, they are able to go to, um, to, to enter a contract with a service provider uh, without going out to bid? Uh, we are aware of that, and that played a significant role in terms of placing money and getting services delivered to the homeless, particularly during the pandemic. Uh, our understanding through interviews with, the, with HSH are, in fact, that that process has been wound down. That, in fact, moving forward, all of those grant agreements, if you will, uh, will be open to competitive bidding. I want to correct that on the record um, okay. because the mayor in, uh, has just proposed to continue this practice for another five years. Um, and that was, in fact, heard at yesterday at the Budget and Finance Committee is to continue to waive um, uh, this, uh, this requirement and to allow this department to have sole source contracting authority, specifically uh, it's a it's a waiver for the city's uh, contracting requirement chapter 21 as well as administrative code chapter 6 um, so and, and in fact the extension of this waiver for sole source contracting authority is extension for another five years which is almost in the so if we were to approve that for another five years starting from May 2024 all the way to uh, 2029 or 2030 and then that means it will be almost the, the, a decade long of the establishment of the city department. From according to the report, and I'm now asking a hypothetical, but it sounds, uh, would that be a reasonable approval uh, and practice 
based on the civil grand jury report to allow the department to continue to have a sole source contracting authority. I think that this, I'll just suggest to you that initially when the civil grand jury started to look at the contracting practices in the HSH, of major concern was sole source contracting. And clearly, sole source contracting in a staff-limited organization allows services to be delivered more quickly and get out to the, those people in need at the expense of perhaps getting the best value for the contract with the best contractor. Um, I think, uh, from based on what you said, that uh, the concept of extending the sole source for another five years points even more directly to the need for improving contracting practices and contracting uh, and, and contract monitoring. Uh, we need to have standardized outcome objectives in those contracts that we can adequately judge contractor performance and we can adequately monitor them on an ongoing basis. So uh, I wasn't aware of that. I appreciate your bringing that up. Uh, and I would just say it goes directly to the heart of, of what we're trying to accomplish. Thank you, and, and I, I just wanted to make the comments through the chair, um, is that, you know, through this, I, I really appreciate this report. The report indicated, especially through the slide here that you mentioned from, you know, uh, quoting, uh, providing a statements from the Harvard Performance Lab, specifically about active contract management, that agencies should use procurement and contracting to establish the foundation for an ongoing collaboration with contracted service providers to strategically improve performance performance, there will be a, a sole source process is not a procurement process. Um, and so I, I just want to leave it like that as a conclusion that um, I, the way I view sole source is, is not just for this department, all across city departments in order for us to get the best value of the products and services, uh, in order for us to remain competitive as a city government for service delivery, uh, again, also to be able to track our performance delivery and to be able to tweak uh, our process is through a procurement, successful and productive pr procurement process. It's only to tweak it, to improve it, but not to eliminate it altogether. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Chen. Uh, Vice Chair Stephanie. Thank you, Chair Preston. I just want to thank you so much for your work. It's very validating to all the work I have been doing. You note in the um, summary that uh, a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors is asking the city attorney's office to draft legislation uh, that may be finalized by the end of the year to standardize and streamline existing um, processes and strengthen performance measurement and performance monitoring. Obviously, that person is me. And I just wanted to give an update on that because that did go through the Rules Committee and received positive recommendation from all three members, uh, Dorsey, Safai, and Walton. Uh, Safai signed on as a co-sponsor, and it was before the board uh, this past Tuesday. And I, unfortunately, I did send it back to committee because uh, we did receive some last-minute input that some nonprofits felt that they uh, wanted a little bit more time to review it, which of course I am fine with because I want to make sure that as we go forward with this very good legislation that many nonprofits are in agreement with, 
that we include everyone and everyone feels seen and heard. So I just wanted to give an update on that because I believe um, we will be able to pass that legislation, which I think is groundbreaking, much needed, as Ben Rosenfeld has said, um, and that should be passed. And hopefully the members of the GAO committee will also um, add their um, approval to that legislation when it comes before them, uh, before them in January. So I'm very excited about that piece of le legislation. It's long overdue. It's a product of what uh, Sophie Maxwell looked at back in 2003 when they made recommendations then. So very overdue, um, but we are getting um, somewhere on that regard. Also, I wanted to let you know that uh, I have been meeting with people that have uh, experience with federal contracting. And it's one of the reasons um, why I think our piece of legislation around nonprofit monitoring and accountability was so good because of the people that I've been able to have intense meetings with. And on contract managing, we are to the point where we are going to be um, submitting a drafting request to the city attorney to better improve our contracting practices because of what we've learned through all of these meetings. So it's kind of two stages for me in the legislation that I've been working on, nonprofit accountability and monitoring, and then, of course, better contracting practices, much of what you have brought up in this report. So I just wanted to thank you. I don't have any questions. I think uh -huh. it's excellent work, and I want to thank you all for your service. Uh, I, I would just say that's that's fantastic, and it, it, it just I think the idea is let's keep our eyes on the prize and make sure that this uh, moves forward. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Chair Stephanie, and thank you, Mr. Ulrich. Um, and I echo the thanks uh, for your work um, on this. And uh, we will hear next from uh, HSH. Before we do, um, just want to also thank and acknowledge. Um, all the folks who are on the service delivery end of these contracts that we're talking about, sometimes we can get very focused on compliance issues and how the contracting occurs, and these are absolutely essential, um, but uh, often less recognized are all the people who are doing some of the most difficult work in the city, uh, understaffed um, with a very challenging uh, a group of folks at times that they are serving and very challenging circumstances in which resources are not available that uh, we need to make available uh, to help people uh, exit homelessness and get the support they need. So I just want to acknowledge all the folks who do this work on the other end of these contracts from the city. Um, and with that, would like to invite up um, Deputy Director Emily Cohn from HSH. Welcome. Good morning, Chair Preston, committee members. Um, thank you very much for having me. Emily Cohen, Deputy Director with the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. And before I jump into my brief slide presentation, I want to thank the members of the Civil Grand Jury. I greatly so agree with everything that you said and appreciated the process that you went through with us uh, as you were developing the report. And this stuff does stir my heart, so I'm excited to be here and continue the conversation with you all about uh, performance management and contracting within the work that we, we do. Um, in large part, HSH is in complete agreement with the findings of the civil grand jury and improving contract monitoring and performance monitoring, which we differentiate slightly, um, is really at the heart of the reform that our department is undertaking under the leadership of Executive Director McSpadden. As we came out with our new strategic plan earlier this year, there was a large system expansion 
included in that plan to meet the needs of our unhoused neighbors. And that cannot be dismissed. We need more. We need more beds. We need more units. But we also need to do better with what we have. And so performance management is actually a really significant part of our strategic plan and an area where we are are undertaking and plan to continue to undertake pretty significant reforms. Um, yeah, so I will go through each of the uh, jury's recommendations, findings and recommendations and our responses pretty briefly. Um, finding number one is the inconsistent metrics in our agreements that impair our ability to accurate, accurately evaluate programs and monitor performance. And I would say that we, we generally agree that this has been an issue. As you all know, the department was created in 2016, and we inherited a variety of contracts from different departments with different metrics, and many of them, I agree, are more outputs uh, than outcomes and are much more descriptive of the activities rather than the outcomes in the lives of our clients. And that is what we are look, working to change with the performance management plan that we have been developing. Um, the first step in alignment of all of our key priorities and metrics is a single data system to measure this work. And we have combined, I believe it was seven data systems that touch the lives of homeless folks into one, which appropriately is called the one system. And we are now building out that system and is now in a place to actually help us do the type of analysis that we need to do. We've always been able to measure performance outcomes for a specific contract. That, you know, we have a system, people report in, but what's really been a challenge is cross-system analysis and really comparing contracts and comparing performance because those contracts did include different metrics. We are now in the process of standardizing all of that. Um, the data systems alone was a massive undertaking, but now that that is in place, we really, um, are in a place to move forward with the standardization. So recommendation one under this finding is that HSH should develop a set of performance outcomes linked to the strategic plan that should be applied across all agreements. And we are in agreement with this recommendation and we are in the process of implementing it. The performance measurement plan for Home by the Bay will include core metrics for performance reporting, consistent data points, uh, and the processes for reflecting and monitoring as they tie to our five main goals within the plan. We are incorporating these into our agreements on a rolling basis. Um, and I was, should say that we want to have specific and consistent components that we are measuring, but that of course different programs will have different standards rapid rehousing versus permanent supportive housing, the outcome need, outcomes need to be a little bit different, but we should be tracking the same things, housing retention and stability. Recommendation two is to include measures in all our agreements to track outcomes for the home by the base subpopulations. And this has already been done. We already require our providers to enter data into the one system for all clients, which is the data structure that allows for the analysis by subpopulation. Finding number two is that insufficient on-site program monitoring uh, limits the ability to evaluate providers. And we are in general agreement with this finding and 
we have developed a new policy that is guiding or program monitoring internally. And then the recommendation number two is to develop standards for our program monitoring to improve monitoring and minimize the burden on our community-based organization partners throughout this process. So we're rolling out a policy that will be fully implemented this year with clear recommendation or clear requirements and processes for annual performance monitoring. We actually have a new position dedicated to coordinating this work across our programs division. And simultaneously, we are working on the citywide fiscal monitoring process. We are looking forward to seeing how this work can be advanced in partnership with the controller's office um, as Supervisor Stephanie's ordinance goes into effect. We're really excited about the framework that that ordinance will give us in partnership with the controller's office to standardize our monitoring and help really enhance the work that we're already doing. The third finding is the city performance scorecard. Um, we've, the city performance scorecard does not adequately report on subpopulations of the strategic plan. And you know, you only have a few choices in our responses and I think to the civil grand jury recommendations. And I, I wish we could have had a more nuanced response because we agree that the scorecard currently does not do that but we disagree that that is necessarily the place for that level of data. I think what is incredibly critical is that we're collecting it and analyzing by subpopulation for those 11 communities that are disproportionately impacted by homelessness, and we are doing that, and that we're excited about. Across departments and initiatives, the performance scorecards are very, very high level. You know, number of people placed into housing, number of people experiencing homelessness, um, and really the, the detail is not included in many, across many issues on the performance scorecard. And if that's something the controller's office wants to change, we're certainly happy to work with them on that. But generally, we will be creating a centralized place on our website where all the metrics that line up to our five strategic plan goals will be reported and dashboarded on a regular basis. So we certainly see that as part of that reporting. But agree with the sentiment um, wholeheartedly of the recommendation or the finding. And I'm happy, I'm gonna stop there and happy to take any questions you might have. Thank you uh, to you, Deputy Director Cohen, and to your whole team um, for your collaboration with the Civil Grand Jury and for all your work. Um, I, I just thought you, between the presentation and uh, from Civil Grand Jury and yours, I think my list of questions has been answered. Just one I wanted to follow up on is, um, in finding two, um, you describe a policy that was adopted by HSH to improve its program monitoring efforts and then the response notes that the work, the implementation work of that will be finished in fiscal year 23-24. We are halfway through that year and I wanted to find out uh, the status of that and what the timeline is to finish that implementation. Thank you. It is in process, so the policy's been adopted. We're in the process of implementing it, and it should be done by the end of the fiscal year. Wonderful. One thing I, I didn't mention that I think is relevant to the discussion is that, and came up yesterday at Budget and Finance, is the performance... Um, sorry, the multi-year procurement plan that the department is undergoing, which is a long-range plan to re-procure 
our, our whole system by service area and core component of the work that will really give us the opportunity. So we're amending, as we amend or enter into new agreements, we're aligning all of these metrics as discussed. But to take a clean, like full swath of our system, it's gonna be done through that multi-year procurement process. And doing the planning in partnership with providers, with people with lived experience of homelessness, with our oversight commission, all of that is, is just beginning so that we can really include metrics that are the right things to be tracking, right? We wanna to get to the outcome. We wanna to get to the difference these programs are making in people's lives. We wanna get away from units. Uh, I mean, we need to know the units of service delivery, but that shouldn't be the goal, right? Is somebody's life being improved? Is somebody's homelessness being ending? And that's really where we're driving. And we need time to build out that plan so that we can have a system that is fully integrating all of these um, metrics going forward. So really excited about that work. I think it speaks really closely to the work of the civil grand jury and the, the monitoring that will go into that is essential to the success. Thank you. Um, Supervisor Chan. Thank you. I, I agree. And, and I think that the civil grand jury has, has mentioned during the presentation a little bit. And I do think that the currently the department already tracking that data when um, Director Musfadden, like when she first came on board, I, it was just so impressive to, to just under her leadership, how quickly um, just your, your point of entry process it has significantly improved, uh, at least in my opinion, it has. Um, and you are moving like much faster uh, in terms of service delivery. I think that the, it is what she said when, we first, when she first came on board that got me really excited. And I think that is something that we have discussed in the past is that, and, and also now uh, concur by the civil grand jury presentation is that when we place someone in a home, uh, provided that service, how long do they uh, stay home and stay house? And that is really a key to that measure of success. If we place someone uh, in, a, in a home and that now they're housed within, I think that at that time, I think Director Fadden talked about 80 or 90% of people do stay housed for the first year as soon as they got a placement. And I think that's very impressive. And I think that's something that if we can track, that is very tangible, at least for a lay person like me to understand. I, clearly, of course, you're going to have multifaceted different layers of tracking in terms of the uh, outcome of success. Um, but that, that will be one for me. I, I just want to articulate that. Thank you. And to that point, it's 97% in the first year. It's great. This is one of our really strong performance outcomes for permanent supportive housing. And absolutely, unfortunately, we do braid a lot of funding sources, and many of them come with different types of requirements. So we're really trying to get as consistent as possible within the framework of the funding sources. Thank you, Supervisor Chan, and uh, thank you, Deputy Director uh, Cohen. Um, just more of a, a, a comment uh, before we head into to the public comment and open this item up. Um, a couple issues that we've focused on a lot in our office uh, and just want to make sure when we're talking about the metrics and outcomes that we're not, um, that we're including and tracking um, some of the things that 
haven't been brought up as, as directly. One of them that we held a hearing on was around eviction rates, for example, where, where there's a real dramatic difference between different providers right now uh, who we contract with and how aggressively they pursue eviction. Uh, it, you know, it's beyond the scope of this hearing to get into the reasons why uh, folks are, are displaced and, and there are many of them, but um, I just want to make sure that when we're tracking metrics uh, and outcomes that we are, that we are including um, some, we, we, right now with our contracting, we, um, I think, have too much of a hands-off policy, and we discussed that in the hearing, where the city is not insisting on certain standardized practices around when it is okay to displace someone. And, for, and, and so often when someone is evicted from uh, supportive housing within the HSH portfolio, that person is going to end up uh, homeless. Um, and we as supervisors, and particularly in, in my district in the Tenderloin, deal, you know, we hear from those tenants who walk in and are facing eviction from certain providers, not others, or who are coming in and even though we have millions of dollars of rent relief money available that we could use to stabilize someone's housing, someone is losing their home who's going to end up on the street. Um, so I, I just want to make sure that's part of the metrics that we're evaluating. I know we're working together to, to try to have, uh, to look at what can be possible in standardizing that in some of the contracts. I do think it relates to Supervisor Chan's uh, point about, um, about sole source contracting, and I, I will say it can be hard for the board to, you know, the contracts come to us, it's an up or down, you know, we have huge providers who, on whom the city is reliant, and it, um, uh, it does become harder in that context to be negotiating, uh, particularly with some of the, the providers who, who may have policies that are that are problematic? Uh, that's more challenging uh, when when there's sole source uh, contracting occurring. Um, the other issue I just wanted to to note, um, and and again, this is not the place for a detailed discussion. I will not ask you questions about it because we you will be coming back uh, to this um, this body with your report. Um, but the um, vacancy issue in a supportive housing, in permanent supportive housing, we have fully funded vacant units um, and uh, we, the board unanimously passed our resolution urging filling of those units. But I think that's an example in our work on that um, where the, the, the lion's share of the problem there is not the providers so much as it is the regulatory system and how we are filling vacancies. So I want to commend you for some of the initial work that I know is going on of trying to avoid this many months delay of moving people into fully funded units and move people instead directly uh, from the streets or from a shelter uh, into into housing. Um, but but that yeah that that is an uh, in, in area and there are others um, where I think the board in particular, you know, in our oversight function, really need to be looking at how we can be partnering with the administration um, to, to, uh, to address some of those barriers. So we'll save that for the hearing on that, but I do think it's, it's highly relevant uh, to the issues um, in this report. So with that, seeing no one else on the roster, I would like to open this, uh, Mr. Clerk, up for uh, public comment. Thank you. Are there any members of the public that would like to speak to this item? <laughs> Please line up along the curtain wall to your left, or your, my left, your right, and the first speaker may approach the podium. 
As a reminder, each speaker will have two minutes. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Michael Carboy. I reside in D2. I'd like to thank the 2022-2023 San Francisco Civil Grand Jury for the four excellent uh, analytical reports that were presented this year, two of which were uh, heard today. Uh, my comment uh, at this moment regards uh, Deputy Director Cohen's responses to recommendation number three. I would argue that the inclusion of subpopulation data on the dashboard is a necessary element for citizens to make an effective evaluation of how the $1.7 billion in nonprofit spend, the bulk of which is going to DHSS, is effectively spent. So I would urge a rethink on that point. Thank you. Thank you for addressing the committee. Are there any other members of the public that would like to speak to this item? Thank you, Mr. Chair. That completes public comment. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. Um, and uh, with thanks to uh, HSH and to the grand jury for their service and for their thoughtful uh, report, uh, I would like to make a motion to file this item. Thank you. And on that motion, Vice Chair Stephanie. Aye. Stephanie, aye. Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. You have three ayes. Thank you. That motion, motion passes. And uh, Madam Clerk, please call item three and four, the two Mills Act items together. Thank you. Items three and four are resolutions approving historical, historical property contracts with the City and County of San Francisco under Administrative Code Chapter 71 and authorizing the Planning Director and Assessor Recorder to execute and record the historical property contract. Item number three is between 140 Partners LP, a California Limited Partnership, and Marlin Cove, Inc. And item number four is between Michael Foley and Chiao Main Li as trustees of the Foley Lin Family Trust, dated June 2023, and the owners of 2209 Webster Street. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, and for <clears throat> these items, um, I believe we will hear, I know for the first one we hear from Elizabeth uh, Gordon Junkier, the uh, principal planner. I, I am checking to see if you are, are presenting on both of these. Uh, but yeah, I'm seeing a nod, great. Um, so you can go ahead and, and present on those. Welcome, the floor is yours. Thank you, Supervisors. Good morning and good afternoon. Uh, my name is Shannon Ferguson. I'm with Planning Department staff, and I have Elizabeth Gordon-Junk here with me today as well. Um, the items before you today are two Mills Act historical property contracts. The Mills Act legislation authorizes local governments to enter into 10-year rolling contracts with private owners of qualified historic properties. This agreement provides property tax reductions to owners of those historic properties who can then allocate the savings towards an appropriate rehabilitation, restoration, and maintenance plan. Every local landmark building in San Francisco, as well as those listed in the California Register of Historic Resources and the National Register of Historic Places, is eligible to apply for the Mills Act program. The department currently holds 46 active Mills Act contracts. These include single-family homes, multifamily homes, tenancy and common buildings, condominiums, and commercial buildings. 
Over the past year, the planning department has been conducting an audit of the Mills Act program, and we'll be bringing these um, findings and policy recommendations to the Historic Preservation Commission for review in January 2024. And we'd be happy to provide a brief summary of any of these recommendations at the end of our presentation if requested. The Millsack program creates an incentive for proper maintenance of our city's landmarks and prevents property owners from delaying large-scale projects that, when put off, often cause much greater and more costly damage to the building. As part of the contract, each property owner outlines rehabilitation, restoration, and maintenance plans for their building. The planning department conducts annual monitoring to ensure that the property owners are completing these scopes of work listed in their plan in a timely manner and in conformance with the Secretary of the Interior standards for rehabilitation. The department received the Mills Act applications by the May 1st filing date. Department staff reviewed each application for completeness, then conducted pre-approval inspections and worked with the applicants to revise the plans as necessary. On October 4th, 2023, the Historic Preservation Commission unanimously recommended approval of the Mills Act applications to the Board of Supervisors for the following reasons. The properties are all historic, qualified historic properties. The rehabilitation and maintenance plans were found to be appropriate, and all proposed work is intended to meet the Secretary of the Interior's standards. Uh, next slide. Um, the first Mills Act contract is for 988 Market Street. It's located on the north side of Market Street between Taylor and Mason Streets and is listed as a Category 1 significant building under Article 11 of the Planning Code and is also a contributor to the Market Street Theater and Loss Historic District, which is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It's an eight-story plus basement office building designed by local ar architect of merit G. Albert Landsberg in the Renaissance Revival style and constructed in 1922. The current owners have an approved site permit to convert the building from office to 45 residential units using the commercial to residential adaptive reuse program. The building is currently valued by the assessor's office at over $5 million. A historic structure report was submitted to demonstrate that granting the exemption to the valuation limit would assist in the preservation of a particularly significant resource. Um, although the property is not in danger of demolition or substantial alteration, staff and the Historic Preservation Commission support an eligibility exemption because of the applicant's commitment to rehabilitating and maintaining the facade and public interior spaces of the building. The owners have agreed to invest $576,259 in rehabilitation costs and an annual um, rehabilitation costs of $20,000 towards rehabilitating the historic terracotta facades, wood frame windows, roofing, marble stairs, floor plates, attic, and parapet walls in return for the property tax adjustment. The proposed work will require significant associated costs to ensure the pres preservation of the subject property. The property owner will invest additional money towards the rehabilitation other than for routine maintenance. And finally, the proposed rehabilitation will protect and preserve and enhance the integrity of the building. The second Millsack contract is for 2209 Webster Street, and it's located on the west side of Webster Street between Washington and Clay Streets. It's a contributing building to the Webster Street Historic District, listed in Article 10 of the Planning Code. It's a single-family residence designed in the Italianate style by Henry Hinkle and built in circa 1900. Uh, the current property owners have converted the building from a medical office back to a residence. 
The owners have agreed to invest 238,000 in rehabilitation costs and 3,800 in annual maintenance costs towards replacing the roof, repairing doors and windows, and repairing and painting the siding. Um, the proposed rehabilitation will pro uh, require associated costs to ensure the preservation of the property, and the property owners will invest additional money towards the rehabilitation other than for routine maintenance. Finally, the proposed project will preserve an, a distinctive example of a grouping of Italianate homes constructed circa 1900. And um, lastly, uh, next week, Supervisor Peskin plans to introduce resolutions that will put these two MILSAC contracts into non-renewal status for the year uh, starting year 11 of the contract. Um, as I mentioned before, all MILSAC contracts are 10-year rolling contracts. When one year expires, another is added so that the contract is always at 10 years, essentially in perpetuity. Putting the contract into non-renewal means that an additional year will not be added, and the contract will, be, will then wind down. Um, if the contract is put into non-renewal in the 11th year, then it would expire in 20 years in 2044. Um, the property owners will still be required to complete their 10-year rehabilitation and maintenance plan. And um, Michael Jine of the Assessor's Office can explain more about how a Millsack property is valued when it's in a non-renewal status. This concludes my presentation. I'm happy to answer any questions. I'd like to turn it over to Mr. Jine to speak about the um, Millsack valuations, and also the property owners are here and would love to uh, address the committee today. Thank you very much. Oh, welcome, Mr. Jine. Good afternoon, Michael Jine from the Assessor's Office. So following the procedures set forth by the Revenue Taxation Code and the State Board of Equalization, the Assessor valued both 982 Market Street and 2209 Webster Street for the Mills Act Historical Property Contract. The process requires the Assessor to complete a three-way comparison test for each property. The first test is the property's current assessed value. The second test is a restricted income value, and the third test is the current market value if the property were exposed for sale on the open market. The assessors are required to enroll the lowest of these three values as the, upon the recordation of the Mills Act contract, um, which needs to be done by December 31st of this year. Um, for 482 Market Street, the three values are the assessed value of $23,331,113, the restricted income value of $8,354,369, the market value of $22,500,000, and the lowest of these three values is the restricted income value of $8,354,369. And this would become the taxable value for the property for the first year of the contract. This results in an estimated property tax savings of approximately $176,681 for the fiscal year 2024-2025. For the second property, 2209 Webster Street, the three values are the assessed value of $2,142,000, the restricted income value of $631,685, and the market value of $3.3 million. The lowest of these three values is the restricted income value of $631,685, and this would become the taxable value for the property for the first year of the contract. This also results in an estimated property tax savings of approximately $17,817,000 for the fiscal year 2024-2025. 
Each year hereafter, once the contract is approved, um, beginning on January 1st of 2025, the assessor will then estimate the property's taxable Mills Act value for that year. It's important to keep in mind that the annual tax savings will change each year. Um, because of changes in market conditions, the changes in interest rates, the property tax rate, and any potential upgrades to the property may change the income potential of that property. Um, I'm happy to take any questions you may have or if you want to uh, go to a deeper dive into each of the valuations. Thank you very much. We may have questions, but uh, let's first uh, hear from uh, the property owners of uh, 2209 Webster, who I know are here. I would like to address the committee. I just request you. that you keep your remarks brief because we have a uh, long agenda today. Thank you. Welcome. All right. Thank you, Chair Preston. Thank you, Supervisors Chan and Stephanie. Thanks for the opportunity to speak about our home. Um, I'm Michael, and this is May, and we are the owners of 2209 Webster Street, and we have two children who are six and eight. We immediately fell in love when we saw the house last year. It is a fixer-upper in desperate need of expensive repairs, but we had no idea we'd be able to live in such a magnificent house. May is a trained architect and artist. We've both lived in the city for over 20 years, and are both passionate about preserving its beauty and integrity. The house has exceptional historic significance as the first house ever built by the renowned architect Henry Hinkle in 1878, who went on to build many of the famed Pacific Heights Victorians. When we bought it last year, it was an abandoned office and had fallen into disrepair. Our neighbor says he'd never seen anyone enter the building in over 30 years. We aim to restore the house to its original purpose as a single-family Victorian home and raise our children there. In the true spirit of the Mills Act, this is a genuine rehabilitation that adds to the city's housing supply. We're bringing it back to its original glory, and the Mills Act contract is essential to helping us preserve its historic character because we're deeply committed to rehabilitate and maintain it in the right way. But it's expensive work, and we're sacrificing a lot to make it livable while preserving it in the way it deserves. This is a long-term project that we've poured our hearts into. Speaking of pouring, during the rainfall this week, our windows have been leaking. We appreciate that passersby are always taking photos of our house because it's a prime example of the Italianist style. Our vision is that due to our stewardship, San Franciscans 100 years from now will continue to walk down our block and be able to admire this architectural gift. A Meals at Contract will help us contribute to the beauty of this historic street. Thanks for your consideration. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, just wanted to, to comment um, on these items and and i do have a couple questions uh, uh for the d departments um so so we have obviously these are two very different um very different buildings um i appreciate the um the the uh, the statements around uh, supervisor peskin's plan uh, to introduce uh, legislation and and i've been um, in communication with him. I think we have some shared concerns about currently how we process Mills Act um, uh, requests and, um, uh, and are trying to move in a direction, as was mentioned, where first off, where these are not um, uh, indefinite, um, where, they, where 
they are deliberately at the front end, we think, as a city uh, of the timeline uh, for, for the exemption or the reduction in value in the contract to exist, but also a phase-out process. So I think, uh, you know, that certainly will apply to these. So we're in the unusual situation, and just want it to be very clear on the record for folks who are getting these contracts that what's coming next will also apply to these contracts, which is uh, those kind of time frames, um, a, which is essentially 20 years. It's as, as was mentioned, it's 10 years, and then it, that, with that notice, phases out over the next 10 is my understanding. Um, but so that won't be part of what's in the record today, but I, I think the intent is to move in that direction. I think we're, we've also been in conversations with planning um, and uh, with uh, President Peskin around just taking a little bit of a new look of, of what qualifies, what doesn't, what level of historical significance, for example, um, there should be as, as, you know, as a showing, um, as well as uh, looking at uh, some other issues that I think have come up through some of the, the requests for Mills Act contracts you know, in this year. Um, I will say that the two that are before us, I, I'm satisfied, are of the type of historical significance and also raise uh, policy issues that are um, uh, that present strong cases particularly both the ones that are before us are in effect um, commercial or other use other past uses moving to a residential use which I think is something we're addressing outside the mills context context but of of how we support those kind of efforts and so uh, these this, the, the building on Webster um, my understanding was previously used as as office space so a historic building that was used as office and is now uh, being used uh, residentially and certainly the the Market Street the Moorfield building is 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 a major example of a larger scale uh, intent to try to create residential um, units there um, so I think those have um, some you know some compelling policy um, arguments for us to look at ways that we can we can support and and Mills Act may be one of those ways. I do want to note that um, and and I would be curious uh, to to hear from uh, probably Ms. Ferguson uh, just on the um, on the market property. This is my understanding is that this value of property size and value is not would not usually qualify it's not our standard when we get these mills act they're usually small historical buildings this is a property that I think would not usually qualify because of its overall value um, and I just wanted wanted to hear a little more on the record of why this property is is I don't know if it's an official waiver or or is you know the the thought process of of uh, proposing this despite, am, am I right that it's, I mean, we don't usually see these, right? We do. Um, there is a limit on the assessed value for um, commercial properties of $5 million. However, the board can choose to uh, make an exception to that limit and grant the Mills Act contract. Um, it is still eligible um, to apply for the Mills Act comment contract. It just needs that exception from the Board of Supervisors. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification. And, and um, 
yeah, and here, as I've said, I mean, this is clearly a historic building and also one that has the additional objective of, of creating some residential housing in, uh, in, on Market Street uh, where, where it is needed. Um, but as we, and I don't think we need to get, to, to get into this here, but as we're looking at the policy, I do want to note there's, for the record, that there's a, dis, there's a big disconnect here between the amount of the investment and the tax savings for this size building and this type project in contrast to the Webster. I, I don't know the total Webster Street investment, but it looks to me like it's in the same ballpark as the tax relief they're going to be getting. There, there's some congruity there where on the market street it, it this is much more clearly essentially a subsidy where the investment of about half a million dollars is going to net a cost savings of about two million dollars so again i i'm support you know on a limited basis in this particular project for the reasons that i've stated i'm supportive and and prepared to uh, calendared as we've done and and try to get that through um, but I do think as we're looking at the policies I think we do need to take a close look when there's that big disconnect because you know my colleague sitting to my left has to manage a budget where we're cutting you know hundreds of thousands of dollars from vital city programs um, and I think it is definitely a time and I think there's I certainly have an appetite to continue working with President Peskin and and planning and the assessor around our policies on these and also just looking at how much money are we talking about annually, right? And to be thoughtful, especially in big deficit years of uh, how quickly uh, or, or how much we want to continue adding to this portfolio of properties that are getting significant tax reductions, often off of property assessments that are already artificially low because of Prop 13. So we, so we also have uh, properties where folks are already paying a lower assessed tax rate uh, than the market value, I believe, uh, and then in addition can get Mills Act. So I, I would invite, if I've misstated anything, I mean, we don't need to, you know, we're in active conversations around what these policies should be. Uh, I just wanted to explain that, especially because there, are, there was, uh, a lot of time and back and forth around getting these calendared and around and not all of them were calendared in the request for this year and so I just wanted to give a little more context uh, so that everyone understands the the policies that we're juggling here I just want to point out that the rehabilitation and maintenance plans only include work to the building envelope um, you know there will be other um, expenses that the property owners will be undertaking as they convert them back to a residential um, uh, building. So, what we're what you're seeing is only the um, uh, estimated costs of um, undertaking work to the building envelope and um, foundation. Thank you. I appreciate that clarification. Um, and you know, um, I will just say that, like, I think the I think the goals are served here by by these two, and I do think historical significance in both of these is is unquestionable. I do want to say that when I have, in looking more broadly at, Mil at Mills Act uh, applications since I've been on this board, um, there's a lot of properties that don't have that kind of really compelling 
historical argument, um, and yet they, the, the threshold here is very low. And I think one of the things we should be looking at is um, making sure there's a very strong case for historical significance. And I say this as someone who lives in, a, in, a, in an old home in a, in a neighborhood where most of the buildings are old homes that would qualify for Mills Act. And, and I don't think that the city and county of San Francisco at a time when we have the budget deficits we're facing, especially at a time, maybe never, but certainly in these time periods, should be allowing pretty much any Victorian home. Um, and, and you know, and that you know, some of these applications. And again, I, I, I because it's not the two that we've brought in, I, I don't want to dwell on it too much. But but it really is the case where um, most under our current approach most property owners of these old, you know, 1800s homes essentially get a huge tax discount to do their uh, exter external renovation work. Uh, and I'm not sure that that's, that's a policy we want to continue, but um, we, we will be actively discussing that uh, in the new year. But if you wanted to respond. Uh, to be eligible for the Mills Act contract, properties must be a qualified historic resource, and that includes um, Local landmarks, California Register listed, and National Register as um, both individually and contributors to a historic district. So they must be a qualified historic property in order to apply for the Mills Act. Right, but the issue comes up in certain neighborhoods, right? I live in the Alamo Square neighborhood, for example. Every old building basically contributes to that, like, or most of them. You know, and so essentially, what we're doing is providing a lot of tax discount, and this is money that goes to the general fund, right? This is what funds our basic city services. We are we are reducing that, right? And and I just I think that you know some of the questions we need to be asking are one, is there a showing of need, right? Are people only going to do the work? if they get this, because otherwise it's not financially feasible and we're going to have dilapidated old structures in our neighborhood, or is this just a tax relief and a giveaway to folks who, don't, who are going to do the work anyway, and, and many of whom are paying tax rates from something they've owned for 50 years, and they're paying, because of Prop 13, they're barely paying any property tax, right? So that's the conversation that, that I hope we'll have and just, um, I think, I think for the historically significant, for the neighborhoods where, uh, that are, that for the historic neighborhoods, vir virtually anything that's old is going to qualify, right? Or am I? They must be that? formally listed on one of the registers okay. that I mentioned. Great. I look forward to exploring it more with you. I've been surprised by some that have come through in terms of, I'll just say, lack of historical value. Again, these two are not them, so I'm happy to support these. Yeah. Uh, Supervisor Chen. Thank you, Chair. Um, I, I think um, what what I'm hearing from Chair Preston, and I I, I, I share the sentiment is, um, I it's more for me, uh, uh, at least for me, the it, it, besides clearly the the property, the structure, and the building itself has to go through the you know the the evaluation and its historical values and the standard has been set um, consistently it's just not about one individual building but 
also collectively in a, in an area that it builds the characters and the history uh, of the of that area, neighborhood, and district. Um, what what I think what I'm thinking about and, and seeing and, and learning more about, and we have a uh, previous, in, in fact, one of the painted ladies um, qualify for the Mills Act. And uh, there were a lot of back and forth about it. The, 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 the thought of that was not so much of whether it's that the structure itself and the building itself is deemed qualified to be preserved and qualified for Mills Act. I think it's more about the individual that now the, the owner, have the ownership of that property, um, whether this is something end up, and, and truly that person actually end up selling the, the, the property now um, is that the goal has always been being able to create a public fund to support property owners and for to preserve because we know um, it could be an undue hardship to preserve the history and the building and integrity of the of the of the building and the history, and so what can we do to make sure that it doesn't becomes a um, tax break for those who may not need it uh, and then but but to still be, to fulfill the goal to preserve the, the building and, and structure. And I think that's a worthwhile conversation to be had, um, both in terms of um, in light of budget deficit, but also uh, in terms of who gets to uh, have the privilege to have a piece of San Francisco history? And can we make it more equitable and more diverse? Um, and I, I think that's where the perspective that I'm coming from. I look forward to learning more. And, and, but if you have something to say, that's, of course, uh, feel free to, to respond. <clears throat> Hello, Supervisors. Elizabeth Gordon-Junk here, one of the preservation managers for Mills Act. And yes, we have been engaging in an audit of the Mills Act program for about a year and a half now. The last time there was significant changes to some of the priorities for Mills Act was about 2018, so it's certainly time to take a look at that. Um, and we, are, we have a, a list of approximately 10 recommendations for changes. Wonderful. Um, you know, and specifically targeting uh, office to residential conversions, as we see. Today, some of the priority, priority equity geographies, multifamily housing, and then looking at recent landmarks and legacy businesses. So um, we'll be giving some of those recommendations to the Historic Preservation Commission uh, in the new year and would hope to also um, uh, give a presentation to this, this body as well. Thank you, that's wonderful. Great, thank you very much. Looking forward to that and uh, Vice Chair Stephanie. Thank you. Um, given what's on the agenda today and what Chair Preston said, I think the two properties here clearly qualify with our current rules that are around Mills Act. And I just want to thank Michael and May, who are in my district, um, in District 2, for preserving housing, preserving this incredible historic property. And um, I'm all for it. So thank you very much. That's it. Thank you, Vice Chair Stephanie. Uh, and seeing no other comments, uh, or questions from the committee, let's go ahead and open this up for public comment. Thank you. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on items three and or four should line up now along the curtain wall. Each speaker will be granted two minutes. The first speaker may come forward to the podium and begin their comments. Uh, hello, supervisors. Uh, my name is Mark Shkolnikov. Uh, with Group I, we're the property owner for uh, the Warfield Tower. I just wanted to say that um, 
we care for and are committed to mid-market um, and this building. Uh, the Warfield has been an anchor for the Market Street Theater and Loft District for over a century. Uh, like many office buildings in the area, <clears throat> it's gone quiet in recent years. Our objective is to continue to maintain the building, do uh, much needed rehabilitation and restoration, uh, and to keep the lights on as the first post-pandemic office to residential conversion in the city. Um, as was mentioned, we're, provide, we're proposing 45 new residences across uh, five floors while maintaining three floors of office and uh, three ground floor retail spaces. So it'll, it'll be a truly mixed use building. Um, and this is the first project to apply the city's recent office to residential streamlining legislation. So thank you for your consideration. And I also wanted to add that members of the project sponsor team are present and available to answer any additional questions. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Are there any other members of the public that would like to speak to the items three or four? Please approach the podium now. Seeing no other speakers, Chair, that completes the public comment segment. Thank you, Madam Clerk. A public comment on these two items is now closed. Um, and uh, looking forward to this, the Warfield project moving forward. I hope your future uh, buyers and residents are told and very comfortable with the fact that they will have live music uh, occurring uh, near them because this is an uh, important uh, venue and space in our in our district this is now in right on the edge of district five so proud to represent uh, and look forward to working with you on this um, so uh, with no other uh, questions comments thanks to everyone for their participation in this uh, and i would like to move to send these two items to the full board with positive recommendation as a committee report thank you and on that motion vice chair stephanie Stephanie I, Member Chan. Aye. Chan I, Chair Preston. Aye. Preston I, you have three ayes. Motion passes. Thank you. Madam Clerk, let's call the next item. Item number five is a resolution approving the contract between Haluna Health and the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing to provide comprehensive outreach and case management through the San Francisco Homelessness Outreach Team, approving a term of January 1, 2024 through June 30th, 2027, and a total amount not to exceed approximately 36.8 million and authorizing HSH to enter into any amendments or other modifications to the contract that do not materially increase the obligations or liabilities or materially decrease the benefits to the city and are necessary or advisable to effectuate the purposes of the contract. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. For this item, uh, we will hear first from uh, Emily Cohn. Welcome back, Deputy Director. Is yours. Oh. Sorry, I'm just. Oh. oh, it's there. Oh, no. Shoot. Okay. Before I start, Clerk, would it be possible to, for you to share the slides? We're having trouble sharing from here we unfortunately do not have access okay. to share through well folks hopefully Would have you like the slides. Me to come assist? what's that i can come up to the front to assist you okay i'm gonna re-download um 
but why don't I go ahead and get started in the interest of time. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Emily Cohen, Deputy Director at the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, and I'm here before you today with a new contract agreement with Haluna Health for SF Homeless Outreach Services. The new agreement with Haluna Health has a term that runs from January 1st, 2024 to June 30th, 2027, a three and a half year time period in the amount of $36.9 million. We have had a long relationship with Haluna Health. The agreement that is currently in place with Haluna was a competitively procured through a process originally held by the Department of Public Health in 2014. This contract transitioned to the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing when it was created in 2016. And it has been amended multiple times over the course of our department's history. And beginning in April of this year, we began a re-procurement process for this, thank you, Dylan, for this program. So the agreement before you today would begin on January 1st, 2024. Under the new re-procurement process, a formal RFP process was conducted and Haluna Health was selected as the provider. The Homeless Outreach Team, or HOT, as we lovingly call it, um, works to connect people experiencing unsheltered homelessness with resources, works to build trust and relationships with folks living on the street, and works to move them into shelter, housing, health care, food access, or other services that they need to meet their basic needs. The street outreach that Haluna provides, or in addition to street outreach, Haluna Health also works with Reckon Park to provide outreach in the parks. We also provide case management to highly acute people living on the street. We provide, they provide staffing to the street crisis response team and collaborate with other city outreach and response teams. Additionally, they can conduct mobile coordinated entry assessments on the street in real time so that people can enter our data systems and begin the process of housing placement. We closely revisited all the metrics within this agreement as we re-procured the the agreement, sorry, um, to try to be meaningful and realistic in what we can achieve through this contract, and we'll be collecting this data and tracking it moving forward. The homeless outreach team is one of many street outreach teams functioning in San Francisco. We are dedicated specifically to the needs of people living unsheltered in our community. We are, do provide ongoing case management through this effort. We also staff, provide staff to EMS-6 and the street crisis response team so that there's streamlined access to the homeless response team system within each of those mobile teams. The staffing within the contract includes 76 FTE, which is a 4.2 FTE increase from the previous agreement. Outreach makes up about 48 of those FTE, case management about 19, and nine for program support. 
there's an additional 3.5 FTE in the contract that is subcontracted to Code Tenderloin to provide support staffing on the hot team when there are absences or aren't enough outreach workers present in a certain day. And staffing has been one of the challenges we've noted in the previous contract with Haluna Health. The maintaining staffing for this type of work is incredibly challenging, uh, but we have reached, I think, an agreeable staffing plan with the partner. As you may be aware, the BLA recently did a street crisis or street response team um, audit, and there was only really one finding related to the homeless outreach team in that audit, and that was this issue of staffing. Um, and so in response to that, we've worked very closely with Haluna Health to develop an SF Hot staffing plan that includes this subcontract with Code Tenderloin, so we have backup outreach workers, essentially, as well as really focusing on how they're posting for positions, paying for postings, ensuring that because Haluna Health is not the name of the team, right? The team is the hot team, and that's colloquially on the street what they're known as. When there's a posting that says Haluna Health in the title, it doesn't always capture the attention of people who want to be outreach workers. So really simple to a fix like that, really posting SF hot outreach worker, you know, at Haluna Health as the title to get more attention. Uh, really deepening our partnership or their partnerships with local colleges and job training organizations and creating new partnerships included, including Spanish-focused recruitments in partnership with the Latino Task Force. The, and additionally, we have included staffing for more administrative support to help ensure staff retention. And I'm happy to take any additional questions you have. Thank you, Thank you very much. Uh, next, let's hear from the budget and legislative analyst, um, Mr. Menard. Thank you, Chair Preston. Uh, good afternoon, Supervisors. Nick Menard from the BLA. Item five, this is a resolution that approves a new contract between the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing and Haluna Health. Uh, this is, um, th there's an initial term to this contract, January 2024 through June 2027, and the resolution uh, approves a not to exceed amount of $36.9 million. The agreement itself has six options to extend, uh, but those would require board approval because the not to exceed amount in the resolution is built on this initial three and a half year term. Uh, so this, con this contract provides uh, staffing for the homeless outreach team and other street teams, uh, which we discuss in our report. Uh, we also discuss um, that the contract also funds an evaluation of the retention plan that was developed uh, that the department just noted to uh, evaluate their staffing strategy. And um, we also note in the report that they, this contractor and, and their current contract has achieved their objective of filling 90% of their positions, at least in the first quarter of this fiscal year. Uh, uh, if you look at page six of our report, you'll see this is about a $9.2 million a year program. Uh, this is largely funded by the general fund. Um, it's about 77% funded by the general fund. There's 19% uh, funded by state funding. There is also a small portion of this contract budget um, that's funded by a $325,000 per year work order from 
recreation and parks that was intended to fund outreach workers into city parks. Uh, that was one of the items that was on the mayor's uh, mid-year cut list. So I just want to note that um, for awareness. Uh, and we also note that there's been um, updates to the performance objectives in the contract, which we discuss on page four of our report. Uh, I do believe this is um, worthy of uh, approval. We recommend approval of item five. Thank you, Mr. Menard. And just can you clarify on the, the portion, the rec park portion that, that was on uh, the cut list, cut list, does that impact anything in this contract? I think for that to be accomplished, there would need to be a new funding source to, to fund that effort. I don't know if you want to add anything on that piece. Thank you for the question. No determination has been made if this will be cut or not. And so we, you know, it's on the list as proposed, but we would adjust the contract accordingly. Obviously, it's a very, very small amount, $300,000 relative to the size of the contract. Small amount, but maybe significant impact to the parks, but it's uh, a resident channel. Thank you. I just want to follow up with that uh, through the chair then. Um, what is the scope uh, of, of Whitbrack and Park then? I mean, there's like 4,000 square feet of like um, park land and, you know, so many uh, recreation centers. So I'm just trying to understand it, the 300 something thousand dollars doesn't sound a lot, but just trying to understand the scope of that for the hot team. Great, thank you. Um, so the Department of Rec and Park work orders that money over to HSH to effectively purchase Haluna Health Services in, in the parks. These parks are largely Golden Gate Park and Buena Vista mm -hmm. um, because of the concentration of people experiencing homelessness. And that supports two outreach workers working in the parks, conducting outreach, talking to folks living unsheltered, trying to bring them in. So if this is cut, this is you know, really a rec and park decision if they want to identify other funds to cover this cost, or if we would, we would likely absorb these outreach workers into the larger pool of folks doing district-based outreach and uh, case management special projects. Yeah, I, I think that is concerning to me to hear the reduction of what specifically Golden Gate Park. I think that's both um, Supervisor Preston and I, and as well as Supervisor Malgar, like we all bought border and supervisor and guardio we all border um golden gate park and it, it's so big and um just this year alone that we have two um deaths in the park um a, a known reason but it's always good to have extra support and extra um outreach uh for the population that may be spending the night in the park um and uh a quick question, and I don't know if there's such thing, but I always do. So first of all, I do appreciate. For the recent months, I do appreciate in seeing um, the hot team out there in vehicles in the Richmond, mm -hmm. and that they're driving around, and it makes a lot of sense for them to actually driving around in the Richmond. Yeah. It's just such a large space, and we... Um, you know, whether encampments or just individuals, they're kind of sprinkled throughout the district. It will require someone to actually drive around to be able to find them yeah. or identify them and, and, and offer services. What is, though, um, so I, I just want to say I appreciate that. But at the same time, I'm also kind of uh, curious um, when we do reach out to you and your team, which I 
again, really appreciate uh, time and time again. And it's, you know, whenever we identify individuals, like I, we, you and I had a conversation about an individual who lost the bank card and wealth, you know, and even the ID and what can we do? And you were able to send someone and, and provide a support. Um, my assumption was it was the hot team. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so what is the response time? And sometimes I'm like, it, it's got taken care of because I can see the individual no longer in the space and, and, you know, and for days. So I assume that's like good. Um, but what is, is there tracking of the response time uh, for each request coming in? Great, thank you so much. I really appreciate you asking this question. It offers an opportunity to really clarify the scope of the homeless outreach team. They are not an on-demand yeah. service. The homeless outreach team is assigned, outreach workers are assigned to different geographies or different initiatives. And then it's their job to walk the beat or drive the beat if it were in the Richmond and really get to know everyone experiencing homelessness in the district, in the neighborhood. That said, the city has a response team called HART. Right. And HART is who, if you issue a 311 response, or you can even get them through calling 911 and they'll the dispatchers will bump it down in priority if it's not something that requires police response. Um, and HART can be dispatched. They are dispatched through the central dispatch process. Um, the homeless outreach team is not. So when you reach out to me as a member of the, the staff at HSH, I can reach out to HOT and facilitate something, but they're not a, a complaint-driven system. They're really driven by the needs that they see on the street. And we have other complaint-driven systems, and that's what HART is for. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. Um, and uh, the public needs a, you know, glossary of the, you know, <laughs> when we say HART and a number of the, the best teams, the HART teams, the HOT teams, the, you know, but uh, we... And DEM has developed <laughs> a, some pretty good public yeah. engagement materials, but really when in doubt, call 911 and right. the dispatcher will walk you through questions to get you to the right team. Um, appreciate your clarification of, at least of the HOT team's role. Um, you referenced earlier the, um, the audit that we did on, on street teams, um, which was recently released um, and and want to thank the BLA for um, really for all their work on that on that audit um, and incorporating some of it into the, uh, into its reports um, we so we'll be holding a hearing on that in the new year and this, this is not the place to to get into all the details on that but given that the contracts before us today I just do want to address the potential sort of interaction here, I, you know, because the, um, as you mentioned, I think the homeless outreach team, the hot team had very few findings in the report, which gave me some comfort when this was moved from uh, different committees here. And, <laughs> and I was looking at, do we really want to hear this before we, and we have a time sensitivity with getting this uh, done this year, um, but also uh, are just about to convene the broader conversation. So I, I do want to know there are very few few findings and, and concerns. Most of them, as you said, were, were, were related to the staffing issues. Um, and um, but I, I did just want to um, yeah I want to make sure we're avoiding service interruption by moving con the contract forward but at the same time as we're working with all the different departments and looking more comprehensively at our street teams um, and and the recommendations in the audit um, I 
just wanted to have your uh, commitment or, or comments that uh, on uh, HSH being ready and willing to to work with us on that and to to the extent there are any adjustments needed um, that we you know that HSHs would be on on board and if we can and that we can actually make you know if there are, if there are recommendations or adjustments when we have a hearing in January February is just having approved the contract today. I'm just wondering if you could address how we collectively can can navigate that. And again, I don't want to alarm anyone because I'm not sure there are going to be any adjustments needed, especially given how limited the findings were specifically re with respect to the hot team. But thank you very much for the question. I I think the contract is open is broad enough that we can make adjustments to how HOT operates in coordination with the other street response teams within this exist or within this proposed contract. It is not so rigid that we cannot be responsive to the changing strategies and approach of the overall city street response teams. HOT is already deeply integrated and working very, very closely, especially with the street crisis response team and EMS-6, but also BEST and the other street response teams. And so if the recommendations coming out of the hearing in January, if there are changes to how we operationalize those partnerships, that can be adjusted within this contract. Got it. And would that include, I know you mentioned the subcontract with Code Tenderloin and like to the extent that there were other strategies like that to fill staffing gaps, we would have the freedom. There's nothing in the contract we're approving today that would preclude further action of that type. I, I don't believe so. We certainly couldn't exceed the staffing levels you know, within this contract, but if we wanted to sort of adjust uh, where folks were or how folks are working or, you know, something to, or, and then there's nothing in this contract that would prohibit, I think, Haluna from entering into a separate subcontract agreement with another outreach organization if necessary. Thank you. And one, one other thing on this, um, I noticed that the teams in this contract are arranged by police stations, not by, say, know, fire and EMS station, not by supervisorial district, which is our orientation, obviously, on the board, um, or DPH has its own outreach zones for the, some of the different teams, or th there's other groupings. Um, can you explain why we organize this at, by police station, and if that's a is that just a long-standing practice, or is there is there a reason for that, and is that something we should take? Uh, it is both a long-standing practice and has benefits because HOT at times does have to work closely with the police. It helps integrate the or helps them build the relationships, but they can also use the police. They also use the police uh, headquarters, you know, if they need to use the restroom during the day or if they need to like pop in and like do some admin work. They can use the stations, and they often will, but. Um, it's, it's mostly built off of a long-standing practice. And I should also note that I have colleagues from Haluna Health here. Um, and if, so if there are questions that they can better answer. Yep. Got it. Thank you. I, 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 not suggesting that needs to be changed. Now, I, I would suggest, though, that it's something we, we think about because we've obviously historically, I think we've shifted or we've tried to shift, right, from, um, police involvement in in homeless outreach to police involvement only when needed in the homeless outreach and quite a bit of homeless outreach that does not involve the San Francisco Police Department, which I, I think is um, 
is, is generally good news for everyone, including San Francisco Police Department, to not be involved in what is essentially public health or housing or other outreach. And so that's something, you know, I think this board, I, my office has certainly supported. So I, it's just struck me as interesting that we still are arranging the teams. I get there are some practical issues, like you say, somewhere you can go in and have a moment of peace or use a restroom and so forth. So, um, but it, it, it may be something that we want to change down the road. So, be, you know, be interested in, in thinking of that uh, in, my orientation always yeah. supervisorial district, so right. That well, makes that, sense right for us, it's supervisorial districts, right? It's like the idea that we have different teams operating in different parts of the district uh, doesn't. Uh, I, I don't know if it, you. Oh, okay. I saw I saw Mr. Menard motioning. I didn't know if he had something to add. But. Oh, I'm just <laughs> that's just me thinking with my okay. body. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, all right. Uh, any further questions? Okay. Uh, let's open this up for public comment. Thank you. Are there any members of the public that would like to speak to item number five? Please approach the podium now. Seeing no members of the public approaching the podium, member, Mr. Chair, that completes public comment. Thank you, Madam Clerk. And uh, we, the public comment on this item is now closed. Um, and thank you for the uh, presentation and thank you uh, for all the work. Uh, on, on the ground uh, doing this important work uh, to all those on the hot team. Um, I would like to move to send this uh, item to the full board with positive recommendation as a committee report. And on that motion to move this item to the full board as a committee report, Vice Chair Stephanie is absent, Member Chan, Chan present, Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye, you have two ayes with Member Stephanie absent. That motion passes, um, and before we call the next item, I'd like to uh, move to excuse Vice Chair Stephanie from the remainder of the hearing. Thank you. And on that motion, Member Chan? Chan, aye. Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. You have two ayes with Member Stephanie excused. That motion passes. Let's call uh, item six, please. Item number six is a resolution approving and authorizing the director of property on behalf of the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing to execute a lease agreement with Lawrence B. Stone Properties Number 8 LLC for use of the property located at 2177 Gerald Avenue as a temporary shelter program for the term of 15 years to commence upon approval of this resolution with two five-year options to extend and an annual base rent of approximately $2.4 million with 3% annual increases beginning in 2024 under Charter Section 9.118, authorizing the city's contribution of up to approximately $5.8 million towards the cost of tenant improvements, affirming the Planning Department's determination under the California Environmental Quality Act and adopting the Planning Department's findings of consistency with the general plan and the eight priority policies of the Planning Code Section 101.1 and authorizing the director of property to execute any amendments options to extend the agreement term make certain modifications and take certain actions that do not materially increase the obligations or liabilities to the city do not materially decrease the benefits to the city and are necessary or advisable to effectuate the purposes of the lease agreement thank you thank you madam clerk and uh on this item again we have um Emily Cohn, Deputy Director, it is nice to have you here in committee for these multiple items, <laughs> in part due to our uh, changing committee structure here in City Hall. We've been uh, 
denied the, uh, the pleasure of many of your department's items coming through <laughs> GAO over this last year. So uh, uh, welcome on your third item of the day. Thank you, Chair. Emily Cohen yours. again for the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. And I want to thank you and your staff for accommodating these items on a pretty urgent request as our previous committee that heard these was dissolved. Uh, really appreciate you getting these time-sensitive items heard before the end of the year. So the item before you today is a resolution that authorizes the director of property to enter into a new lease agreement for the property located at 2177 Gerald Avenue for use as a temporary shelter program and adopts the planning department's determinations. The term of the lease is for 15 years with two five-year options to extend. The initial term will commence following Board of Supervisors approval and will end in November 30th, 2038. The annual base rent is 2.5 million and will begin nine months following the execution of the lease. The city's contribution of 5.8 million towards 10, it includes the city's contribution of 5.8 towards uh, tenant improvements. The point in time count estimates that there are over 4,300 people experiencing unsheltered homelessness in our community and 25% of which are located in District 10. In July of 2023, the city conducted a tent and vehicle count throughout the city and found that there were over 1,000 inhabited vehicles in San Francisco and nearly 50% of those are located in District 10. Currently, the Bayview Vehicle Triage Center is the city's only safe parking program. And when the, the opportunity to lease the site on Gerald came up, it's a very large property. We were initially thinking cabins. This would be a great facility for tiny homes or cabins, similar to what we're doing at 33 Goff and at 16th and Mission. And after you know, talking to folks in the neighborhood and walking around and really assessing the situation, we decided to move forward with a hybrid model that will combine safe parking and cabins <laughs> to meet both the unsheltered need in the community and the needs of vehicularly housed folks in the neighborhood. We have been engaged in a several month community engagement process with neighboring businesses and residents in the area, many of whom have been supportive of the proposed project with the assurance that this project serves the needs of the immediate neighborhood. Um, HSH will conduct a solicitation process to identify a culturally competent nonprofit operator for the program, and this is anticipated to open in late 2024. So if the lease is approved by the board, we will move forward with the lease and the site improvements and construction that are required. We'll do the solicitation process for the provider and hope to open by the, this time next year. This will include, the program will include 24-7 staffing, including housing-focused case management, roving behavioral health and medical services provided by DPH, basic amenities like restrooms, showers, Wi-Fi, privacy fencing, office staffing for case management and other services, community space, dining space, and storage. We are anticipating providing two meals a day, laundry service, and gray and black water pumping for the occupied vehicles on the site. 
and we are anticipating that this initial phase of the project will include 60 cabins and 20 safe parking places. I should note that the size of the property will allow us to go bigger, but we are constrained by the existing budget. And so down the road, if we're able to raise more funds through state or federal, uh, we could add capacity at the site. Um, this next table is just a little, a bit of a cost overview. Sorry, I'm behind in my notes. Um, the criti it's critical that the program provides you know, the necessary amenities and services for two shelter interventions in District 6. The long-term lease provides an opportunity to invest in a 15-plus-year program that will provide safe, dignified, and sustainable place for people to stabilize and work towards exits from homelessness. This overview of the cost, you'll see there's one-time tenant improvement costs of about $7.5 million, with $5.9 million coming from the city and $1.6 million coming from a contribution from the landlord. HSH and the landlord have agreed to an amortized payment plan for the additional tenant improvements that include construction of restrooms and, property, and showers on the property. And the amortized payment plan allows for this work to happen simultaneously with other tenant improvements prior to the site opening, which the city will then pay back over the course of the lease, or the beginning of the lease. And I am happy to take any questions that you might have. Thank you. Um, report from the BLA next. Thank you. Oh, I, hang on one second. Do you want to wait till after? Yeah. Thank Go you. Uh, item six, this is a resolution that approves a lease uh, where the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing would be a tenant and the landlord uh, would be Lawrence B. Stone Properties, number eight, LLC. Uh, the lease is for uh, a property at 2177 Gerald Avenue. Uh, we show a map of the lease site on page 10 of our report, uh, which will be used for a, a kind of hybrid cabin and safe parking shelter program. Uh, we discuss the terms of the lease on page 10 of our report, and some of the key terms are um, an initial base rent starting at $2.5 million, um, an initial term of 15 years with two five-year options to extend. Um, and we also discuss uh, the tenant improvements that will be required at the site, uh, which total $10.2 million. The lease caps the city's uh, share of those costs at $8.6 million, and that includes $900,000 in interest that will accrue from the payment plan for a portion of the tenant improvements. Uh, all of the work will be undertaken by the landlord, uh, and the cost estimates themselves that were part of the the, the, the scopes of work in the lease were developed by the landlord. We did independently review them with a uh, property development expert and do believe the costs are reasonable. On page 12 of our report, you'll see the cost of the lease um, and associated services. So the initial rent that the city would pay over the f initial 15-year term is $44 million. Um, there's $8.6 million in tenant improvements that will be paid by the city and then another $2.5 million um, over that 15 years for utilities and real estate taxes. And when you look at the um, total cost of the lease and the services that will be laid on top, it ends up being, at least in the next year, in the next year 
uh, $90,000 per slot. Uh, and that's about the cost that was um, noted in the Department Safe for All report that was published within the past year. But it is higher than the cost per cabin is noted in that report. We do recommend approval of item six. Thank you, Mr. Menard. Uh, Supervisor Chan. Thank you. Um, I don't know if it's, I, I think I always have a questions when when we think about tiny homes or, or safe sleeping sites and all across temporary shelter um, is that what is the time period or turnaround um, period whenever we have an individual that we offer the shelter? Um, clearly, I know that there's no consistency depending on the individual, but is there a, a just sort of, we can range from two days up to um, three months and then, or I know that it's a, they, they have to come back. When it comes to temporary shelter, it's a daily. Um, and maybe if you can explain to me what this is, how this is, and then knowing the fact that we're looking at a 15-year term, that, that's what it is. Like we're looking at a 15-year term, lease term, which I, I think that we should invest and we can, should continue to invest. Clearly, we need to house more people. Um, for me, it's always this um, between the investment in temporary shelter versus permanent supportive homes or emergency housing vouchers, or however way we can place someone into a permanent housing situation. I'm just trying to evaluate and have a better understanding when we do invest in these type of temporary shelter, besides temporarily be able to shelter individual, do we actually also have a timeline to say when someone do come, we tend to have this turnaround time to be able to help place someone in a permanent home? Absolutely, thank you so much for the question, Supervisor Chan. So. We have made a commitment that the majority, or, in the pri or I should say that the priority for this site will be to serve the immediate area, which is deeply impacted by both unsheltered homeless and vehicular homelessness. Yeah. So the way that we will achieve that is that through, our, looking back where Haluna was sitting, but through our partnership with the homeless outreach team, they will get to know folks in the immediate area, which they pretty much already do, have a by name list of people living in the neighborhood before we open the sites, which doesn't create a sort of magnet effect. And then our first round of placements are all people from the immediate area. So people are invited in. And from there, they ha we do not have a length of stay limit. So they don't have to renew their reservation every night. Okay. But people are there. We, we used to have length of stay limits. We've done away with them because they were fairly arbitrary and not particularly effective. But we do see that people stay between 90 days and six months. So effectively, each of these slots that we are referencing can serve between two and four people each year. So, you know, if we think about $90,000 a slot, which I think was Mr. Menard's number, that's not per person. That's often for four people yeah. to have temporary shelter, meals, case management, and hopefully a, an exit to a permanent housing destination on the back end. Um. I know this is not the item that we discussed, mm -hmm. but I just want to quickly reference to the outcome base yeah. and measure and matrix. This, again, will be something very helpful, especially when it comes to temporary shelter, yeah. um, both contracts and results, is that we understand 
you know, we can receive X number of people, and with these people, with these number of people, we're able to place this percentage right. in a permanent home within this time period. That's a very long formula, but but it's it's what I'm looking for. I'm hoping to learn more um, in the coming year, especially during budget. Absolutely, and as this. When the contract comes back to you for the services, that's exactly what we can talk about is the outcome measures that are built into that contract. You know, the, how, the responsibility for housing placement is not on the shelter alone. And so we do struggle with this idea of should the shelter provider be responsible for the housing placement? Because we also have a separately contracted housing location and placement team. And they are actually the ones facilitating the connection. And so I do think it's a little bit dangerous to tie housing outcomes just to the shelter because it's a whole system that needs to work well for somebody to achieve a housing outcome. And we've had more housing outcomes in the last year than we've ever had before and really continue to ramp up our housing placement and speed up that process so the system is achieving those outcomes. It's not necessarily attributable only to the work of the shelter. Right, the, the shelter helps folks get their documentations and make their appointments, but the coordinated entry system actually facilitates the placement. Uh, could I follow up a question? Sure. Um, and through the chair again, and, and I think at times, and this is where the budget kind of comes in, at times when we do evaluate the service contract, mm -hmm. the lease contract is no longer, a, it's not always that they accompany each other. Correct. Sometimes they do, but not always. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that for both the budget and legislative analysts and for the budget process is that it will be very helpful to identify when you do return with this service and, and outcome and measure to, I, now I'm adding another element to it, but this is particularly specific for budget and, and contract approval is that to be able to determine inclusive of lease, inclusive of service, inclusive, like all inclusive cost of one site, be it temporary shelter or per permanent supportive housing, what does it cost for the individual? Because right now is $132 per night per individual, but we know it's only for the lease. No, let me clarify. Please. So with the lease cost and services included, we are anticipating $132 Oh, sorry, $132 a night is the service cost okay. without the lease. With the lease, we estimate it's about $201 per guest per night. So that is services and lease. And I have to say, this is an estimate. We have not gone through the, the RFP process for this site or the solicitation process for this site. And so this is sort of what we have, what we are estimating it could cost, which is fairly consistent with our other programs it's a it is a bit higher but we also know that when we get more budget and can expand beyond the 90 person capacity that per dollar per person per night cost will go down significantly thank you supervisor chan i had a few questions uh first following up on supervisor chan's question around the the uh, length of stay. So, so what do you intend in terms of the maximum length of stay? So we don't currently have a, an allowable max by policy, but we want to put that onus on the provider, right? We, we're in a lot of policy discussions internally about what is the right incentives to move people out and where do those, where does that fall? And I think it falls largely on the provider and the housing placement system. We don't want to create as a a policy by which the guest 
is super anxious about the end of this timeline and it's a very stressful situation for them or arbitrary. And, but we want to have an acceptable time limit with possible extensions if you have a housing placement, you know, pending. Um, like I said, 90 days to six months is currently what we're seeing our average length of stays and we are in internal discussions about potentially imposing a length of stay limit or range um, on our system, which, which is what we had before the pandemic, and we ended that practice during the pandemic. Thank you. Um, for the anticipated RFP for uh, the operator, um, how long will that, is it anticipated that that commitment will run not the length of the lease, is that what is no. it a five year or what, what are you into? You know, it, it varies pretty significantly in our contracts. So we have not yet drafted the solicitation. I would imagine it would be a three to five year agreement with options to extend. Um, and we will conduct that process simultaneous to construction so that when construction is done, we're ready to open. Okay, and then what is the maximum capacity? You mentioned that the plan is 60 cabins, 20 safe parking sites, but that's not, the envelope would allow growth if there were funding. What, what is the, the, the maximum? That so we have not done a test fit that maximizes both cabins and vehicles, but our initial test fit did show that we could go up to approximately 250 cabins. Um, the footprint for vehicles is bigger than for cabins um, because of the spacing requirements. So I, it would come down if we continued the hybrid model. But I think we can, you know, we have a long term here. We want to see how it goes. We want to see if we can raise more state or federal funding for this. And we'd like to gradually expand over the life of the project. Thank you. One other question. Um, are these, is a site like this, analyzed for purchase versus leasing. And I, I wanna be clear, I'm not questioning the amount I, I hear, heard from the BLA and from you, and I'm sure real estate's looked at it and feel, have received no information to suggest that the leasing amount is not market rate. And it, I'm not questioning that amount, but I am questioning if in this process of evaluating a large site, there is an analysis done of purchasing it versus renting it and and a conclusion that is drawn that it is more advantageous for the city to, to rent. We have done those type of analysis when we have funding available to purchase. We do not have an, a lump sum of funding available for an acquisition, nor is this property for sale. So we have uh, looked at other properties where it is for sale or if it's for supportive housing and we actually have funds to acquire supportive housing sites. We have done that type of analysis, um, but for this site, because it was only available for lease and we have no shelter acquisition dollars, um, we move forward with the lease. I believe we do have an option to purchase built into the lease though. Got it. Um, I, I will suggest, and right I don't know, refusal. you know, I, I, it wouldn't be, I think it would be helpful information generally for us to know when we're analyzing long-term leases for large sites. Um, and again, it doesn't impact my, you know, I, I think it's perfectly appropriate to move it forward, but it feels like there's, there's a policy decision for either the budget committee, uh, mayor, others to think about whether we are acquiring sites like this for 
for purchase or whether we're renting them. There are different ways to potentially finance acquisition, uh, including long-term debt options. And, and just, um, I just want to make sure somewhere that that, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that analysis needs to happen every time we're, con we're considering one of these either in the budget committee or in, um, uh, you know, in GAO. Um, but I just want to make sure that analysis is, is happening and if there is an alternative which is you could purchase it and it would cost this much that that is being presented to the mayor's office to the budget committee and that policy decision can be made but uh, supervisor chan can speak more intelligently as our budget chair to this than i have and you are on the roster supervisor chan Thank you, Chair. I, I, I don't know if I can speak more intelligently, but um, my assumption is, uh, as we have requested a real estate, um, Director, uh, uh, Director Andrico Penick adds really small team uh, of just a few, but I have, has there been conversation with his team to, to evaluate both on leasing uh, properties and purchasing or acquiring property? Absolutely, we've worked very closely with real estate. They negotiated this deal they just couldn't be here today, so I'm representing both departments. Um, but real estate has been a key partner, and the landlord's been great to work with. It's been a really positive all around. Yeah, and but I think the, the question really also is that we, we have tasked uh, um, his team, uh, the real estate team, to when it comes to city property leasing for our office spaces right. that we have asked to whether we should acquire them. And in fact, uh, you should know that the, the budget committee has scaled back almost all the leases in, in, instead of a decade long that we have scaled back to five years um, for office space. For the, for the reason being that we believe that the time to purchase is now, um, given the market in, in this, and, and we want the city to think about investment and the acquisitions for long-term investments to save on the uh, rent. Um, just something that we perhaps, I think that's what uh, Chair Preston was sort of mm -hmm. alluding to and, and just wanted to add to, like, happy to um, task real estate to add on to also about um, shelters and sites and, and generally we agree we've you know recently purchased I believe eight properties we we take the approach of it's when possible we do like to acquire there is not a good funding source for acquisition of shelter the way there is for housing thank you um, let's go ahead and open up public comment on this side Thank you. Are there any members of the public that would like to speak to item number six? Please approach the podium. As a reminder, all speakers will be granted two minutes. Good afternoon, supervisors. My name is Michael Halby. I'm the property manager of a PDR commercial building on Gerald Avenue and the co-chair of a group called the Market Zone Working Group, which is a group of community stakeholders, businesses, nonprofit organizations, and other property owners in the district who are working together to try to improve uh, the conditions in the neighborhood. Uh, we've already met with city staff regarding the commons, as this shelter is being referred to, and previously sent a letter to the board, which you should both have received. I'm just simply here to reiterate our requests and concerns surrounding this site. Uh, first and foremost, we understand the logic that the facilities such as these are opened in areas of high demand, and so following that logic, it's incredibly important to us that this site be prioritized for the unhoused living immediately in the district, especially in vehicles right uh, in this zone. Um, thousands of workers come and go from jobs in this area every day and night, and the residents and staff that are gonna be coming to this shelter are gonna find themselves in an area where there are streets that are poorly maintained, some have no sidewalks, 
Others are littered with tripping hazards, blocked entirely or unclean, partially due to the lack of street cleaning from the lack of parking enforcement. The lighting in this area is, would be considered in any other residential area woefully inadequate, uh, and therefore we ask that the shelter uh, prioritize having good lighting both on the property and the surrounding streets, as well as sufficient resources provided to keep the area clean, uh, especially given that the many food-related businesses are in this district, including the San Francisco Produce Market. There's also a lot of crime in the area, and uh, workers report to us feeling unsafe, and we ask that the shelter provide community ambassadors an adequate police presence so that we can have a sense of safety in the area. Uh, and finally, as the only community stakeholder group in the market zone, we ask that we continue to be involved in the conversation and the planning for the commons. Um, our desire is simply to assist in making sure that this is the best shelter in the city if it's going to come here and that the addition is a benefit to the district and to the zone as a way as uh, it's being presented and intended and not adding to the many existing challenges of the market zone. Thank you for your Thank comments you. today. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public that would like to speak to this item? Chair, there are no other speakers for this item. Thank you. Public comment on this item is closed, uh, and I'd like to move to send this item to the full board with positive recommendation as a committee report. Thank you. And on that motion, Member Chan. Chan, aye. Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. You have two ayes with Vice Chair Stephanie excused. Thank you. Motion passes, and uh, please uh, well, do we have any other business before the committee? There's no further business before the committee. Thank you. We are adjourned. San Francisco Government Television.